Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Detonate, the track that just came out is a split with Declination by my friends, the Scottish Bastards and Despise. Despise and the kids around it were involved in the Shattered Realm show we did in Leeds in 2018. And they have moved on to this project, Despise. They are currently traveling from the Northeast down to FYA. As we're talking about this, they're going to be killing at FYA for those of you who are down there. And those of you not, please check it out. This track is available on From Within and Northern Unrest as a split. Don't know too much about Declination, but if they're on the split with Despise, they probably fucking rip. Again, these are some good homies, some good young kids. They had a couple bands before this, but Despise is what they're putting their ass into, and it's fucking fantastic. Obviously, I've said this multiple times on the show. Eventually, we'll have Carter on. He was the future podcast guest, so tonight's his night. But before we get into that, let's rock. Philly Hardcore Shows. We're fucking moving, baby. 2022. For those who don't know, 25 years. Sounds weird to say, but I booked a Unity Hall show in March of 1997, which is 25 years ago. And I, I make that as like my mark as like the first shows that I was putting on by myself because the shows we were doing at the Forens was kind of like everybody involved. So I don't want to take that credit. But once I got the Unity Street, that was the beginning of just like me doing what I'm still doing now. And it's crazy to say this, but we've got a ton of fucking shows. And um, again, Philly Hardcore Shows isn't just me. Bob Wilson fucking kills it. He does an amazing, absolutely amazing job. And um, it needs to be understood that, you know, I have full faith in everything that he puts on. And he, he, does, some, he does different stuff. And we also have, as you heard, if you listen to the Christmas show, we've got the wonderful AXBX also out there. Putting shit on new blood and the old the old standard. Chris X out there putting on some pharmacy shows. First up, a couple weeks from now, this is uh more of the different kind of music that's been going on. It's a Bob Wilson joint, Sun Title, Wild Red, Standstill and Fanfare. Wild Red, there's a hardcore kids from Wilkes Bar, Standstill, I think they're from Long Island. They played a show at the church with Bob. I don't know too much about Suntile or Fanfare, but this show's going to be cool. It's on North American Street, which they completely redid. It went from being like the gateway to the real hood, and now it's uh, very hipsterfied. The venue's called Original 13, and uh, new interesting spot. Bob's always finding new spots. That's this. Then we got Madball Powerhouse. Next step up, Debt Before Dishonor. We've also added to the show, The Take. The Take, which is Will Shepler, Madball, and um, we got Raw Brigade, we got Payback, we got Risk from uh, the Merrimack Valley, Massachusetts. Insane show. Tickets are going good. Um, obviously, there's more shows, so I'm just like bopping off the ones that we have on the website. Drain and Pay the Truth are going to be in March. I mean, the amount of shows coming out is going to be sick, but the way to get to all our shows is phillyhcshows.com. And more are coming every day. Chris has some shows, the Gloves Off record release party, which is uh, the pharmacy. 
I think that's February 7th or something. Uh, there's a ton of shows. Just make sure you go to our website, check it out. Follow our socials, which is Philly HC Shows on Instagram and Twitter. Philly Hardcore Shows on Facebook. If you're listening, this is the weekend of FYA. So this drops on a Friday. And the pre-show, very happy that we are made to be a part of it. Shattered Realms, first time in Tampa since 2005 and the first time in Florida since 2008. We're playing with our friend Section 8, which we've played on the show. The Killer, who we've all had on the show and played on the show. Colin Arabia, I mean, I love COA, love Colin. Skinhead, which you also had their track on the show here. Contention's a local Florida band. And uh, the up-and-comers. Dude, this band fucking kills from Long Island. Pain of Truth. There still are tickets for this pre-show. Make sure you go to floridamind.com. Listen, there's going to be people that are going to be canceling tickets last minute. So if you're like on the fence or you're worried about tickets for FYA, show the fuck up. Show the fuck up. You'll get in. Support this. Bob did a great job. I really am looking forward to it. And I hope that you guys can all make it down. And then if not, hey, there's always next year. Going forward. We had Eddie Leeway on the show for the Christmas special. He ain't doing too well. He's got an infection in his port. Things don't seem to keep rolling for him in the right direction, but we're going to keep our prayers up for him. Make sure that you go and support Eddie Leeway. You can go to the Eddie Leeway GoFundMe, help him out. Make sure that you are cognizant that there's a lot of people around that are suffering in different ways. Let's try to keep our heads out of our asses. Be more mindful than just what's at the present and look for the people in our community. The people have built us up. There's so many old guys now in hardcore, it's kind of crazy to think about it. That here we are, it's 2022, which is, depending on your marker, somewhere between 42, 43, or 44 years of hardcore. Some of these guys are getting older, man, and they're, they're dealing with stuff. And we got to support them. So give Eddie some love. Moving on to our guest tonight, Carter Holmes. Uh, for those who vaguely remember me bringing up in passing, Carter Holmes is from Alabama. His story's fucking fantastic. Growing up, learning the ways to get into hardcore, but it's his spirit and the things that he brought to the table and his drive to put his time and effort into things like From Within Records, which we've played so many songs from From Within. They're harking back to the old days of uh, old school, 90s style record labels. He's got a lot of spirit. He fucking lives and breathes hardcore. A lot of us can relate to his story. Uh, and just somebody in the modern era who I feel is a driving force. He's got an ear. He listens to these bands. Him, Bob, Lennon from Strike, and... Uh, Fuck, I always forget his other band, which is Blister. You know, by the way, for those who are big fans of Eco Strike, last show ever, totally forgot about this, at the church as part of uh, From Within Records, their showcase. Make sure you go to that. It's fucking awesome. But now, back to Carter. This guy really lo- lives and breathes hardcore to the point that he plays in payback, even though he lives in the South, in Pensacola, Florida comes up and plays shows in Pennsylvania and all over. He makes the time. He's a married guy. He's going through college, trying to have a career. He's dynamite at jiu-jitsu. And just a good kid. And I was really happy to have him on. I said he's a future guest. 
So, without further ado, let's fucking go. Today, we are talking to a friend who I've said, I don't know how many times I've said in either intros or outros, a future podcast guest. But here we go. Here's my man Carter from From Within. Carter, thank you for finally coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Like all things, we got to start at the beginning, and I, I got to. I'm actually more excited to hear your entire childhood and how you ended up a hardcore kid more than almost anybody at this point. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. So as you can imagine, there isn't much, there's not much hardcore music there, to be honest. Uh, like most of the, the hardcore kids, I would say it's easier to get into if you're like from Birmingham or something like that, just because there's other places around. But for me, I just got lucky is basically just my next door neighbor. Uh, he unfortunately passed away when we were really young, but uh, he basically just anything he listened to is what I listened to. He's just someone I looked up to a lot. And one day he just somehow on YouTube found like a live set of some band. And we were just like, you know, what, what is this? We've because we were listening to shit like August Burn Dread and other stuff like that, like in middle school. And I think it was my eighth grade year or the summer of my eighth grade year. He just randomly found a band. And I want to say it was Cruel Hand on YouTube. I can't remember exactly, but I want to say who that who that's who it was. This was like 2008. And yeah, I just got insanely lucky that someone randomly found a band on YouTube one day and he lived across the street from me. Now, when you were like younger, were your parents even listening to music? Like, were your parents okay with you listening to this devil music being that you're from down there? Like, what was their thoughts when you were first finding this kind of stuff? Uh, so my, I don't know my parents that well. My grandmother raised me, uh, just cause my parents have had issues my whole life. And she like, it's kind of hard to explain her. Like she was very chill. She was super cool. She wasn't like a church going person. So she, she definitely didn't like understand the music, but she didn't think it, it was like, she didn't think I was crazy. Like she would bring me to shows, drop me off at shows and stuff like that. She would even drive to Pensacola where I live now. I remember she drove just to drop me off and just sat around somewhere and then picked me up, you know, when the show was over. So she was pretty supportive of it, but she definitely like did not understand it at all. She couldn't understand the concept that I didn't drink or do drugs or anything and listen to this music. Stuff like that, but she wasn't like weird about it or anything. So aside from mostly being raised by your grandma, what was uh what were your things you had going on at, like before you start really getting into music, or did you ever even try to play music? Like, was there anything that happened before you uh, your next door neighbor got you hip to this stuff? So I had been into music, I guess, since I was young, but like not hardcore, obviously, but like. I don't know. I would say middle school is when I really got into music. Um, my friend, a friend of mine named Trevor, who was my best friend in like sixth and seventh grade, he was like this weirdo. He would just sit in his house and do push-ups all day. And he was like, I'm going to the military as soon as I turn 18. He's one of those dudes. And he would just sit and blare like Metallica and Slayer and stuff like that. So I found that through him. And I was natural. I was like, oh, this is like cool. Because my grandmother played like, it'd be like country music blaring in the house. You know what I mean? Which is fine. You know, I mean, I like I like country music for the most part, especially some of the older stuff. But when I heard like, I guess more aggressive music, I was just like, wow, this is 
it's crazy. This stuff exists. Like before that, I was definitely like listening to basically whatever my grandmother listened to. And then like fifth, sixth grade, I got into like, I guess like Eminem. I was definitely listening to like corn and stuff like that. And then my friend Trevor, who I mentioned was just blaring like Metallica and Slayer all the time. And I kind of got into that from there. And then it just kind of progressed on to what it is now, I guess. But that was like my first, I would say like sixth grade was the first time I like got into music when it was more than just like passively listening on the radio to something. I've always just thought of uh, Mobile, Alabama as like the spot you drive past in that weird ass long drive from the edge of Florida to the edge of Texas, unless we're hitting Louisiana. So what was it like? Was it, was it, was it culturally backwards in your head now thinking about it? Or were you not even like aware that like the South, it was a slower pace living people were more rurally minded. Like how did that affect you as a kid growing up? Uh, it honestly, I, it didn't really hit me. I, this sounds crazy. I don't think it really hit me until the first time I came to Philadelphia. Uh, I think it was on a tour with Malice at the Palace. That was my first time like up that way. I was, I think I was like 19 or 20 years old. And I was just like, dude, holy shit. Like, it is so different. Like, it still blows my mind now, like, when I go to Philly. Like, you'll just see people on the streets, like, walking around in, like, a band shirt, like, a hardcore band or something like that. Like, where I come from, that that does not exist. Like, even when all my friends were younger, there was, like, four of us in the whole city that I'm aware of. And Mobile is a pretty big city that knew what hardcore music was. So, like, thinking back on it now, it is insane, like... The high school I went to, I didn't have any I didn't have any friends. All my friends like they lived in different places. Like they lived in Pensacola where I live now, or they lived in Fairhope, Alabama, which is a little bit outside of Mobile. So yeah, thinking back on it, it's just it was crazy that I grew up like that. Like like I said, hardcore didn't exist there. Like being straight edge, that wasn't I was there might be literally one other straight edge person who still lives in Mobile in the entire city. It's just I don't know, it's different. Like, I feel like culturally, like the Northeast, the West Coast, you guys like have like hard, someone knowing what hardcore music is, but not being that into it. Isn't that crazy? Like where I come from, it's not that's not normal at all. You know what I mean? It's very it's a very out there concept. So, yeah, it was kind of a culture shock once I started touring and traveling and just going to all these other cities that has that had all these other kids, you know, a part of the scene. It was weird. Well, that was the next thing I was going to get to. So you're you're rocking out the August Burns Red. Was that just stuff that was available at the mall? Like, how did you guys even get into that? Uh, my it was again my neighbor. Uh, his name was Evan. Like I said, he uh he passed away when he was 19. I was 17, but he had a cousin who played in a local band that was like that's like a metalcore band. Um, and basically, like I said, that was like my best friend. That was like he was a little bit older than me, so I kind of looked up to him. And basically anything he was doing, I was doing. So he found like August Burns Red and like other metalcore type stuff through his cousin who was playing music like that at the time. And I just kind of followed suit with them. Uh, I didn't learn. I didn't really pick up anything from like I wasn't one of those kids that just like went and looked at CDs or anything like that. That wasn't until I was like into music already when I was doing stuff like that. Yeah, I would, I would even imagine unless it's the Internet, the. There, there ain't too many punk rock uh, record stores out there in Mobile, Alabama. 
Oh, no, not not at all. There is a decent one called Mobile Records, and I have gotten some some good stuff from there years ago. Uh, I don't know who in Mobile just went and dropped off their lot of hardcore records. But yeah, for the most part, like like I said, it just it simply doesn't exist there. And for whatever reason, it just didn't catch on. So walk me through the process. You guys check out this Cruel Hand. How do, how do you start getting more involved in the like the baby steps of fine and hardcore? So, yeah, it was stuff like, cruel. I want to say it was Cruel Hand, if I remember correctly. Um, and then we would just look up, like, there would be YouTube. You'd find, like, either band shirts in the videos or maybe it was the YouTube comments or related videos or something like that. And then we would just kind of go down YouTube rabbit holes. And then shortly after that or around that same time, we found out that there was like an actual hardcore scene in Pensacola, Florida, um, which is where I live now. And um, in 2009, I think, was the first show of this band called Cold Hearted, uh, which was Rob Goodspeed from Alice of the Palace, uh, his one of his first bands. And it, it was exactly the same style. It was like Cruel Hand, No Warning, like Backtrack, 2009 sounding kind of metallic hardcore. So, you know, naturally, like as a younger kid, you know, we'd love that. We, we, we thought it was insane that someone our age was doing a band, you know what I mean? Like that was still a pretty foreign concept to us. So I would just from that, like we found out shows were happening there and I was young, like I couldn't drive. So I would kind of have to like depend on people. Or like I said, like a few times my grandmother even drove me to Pensacola, which is like an hour and 15 minutes away. So not that crazy, but crazy when like. You know, she would just drop me off, go do something, and then pick me back up, and we'd drive back, you know, get home at, like, 11 or midnight sometimes. So, um, but, yeah, basically finding Pensacola was, like, the real, like, me getting more into hardcore and making more friends into hardcore. Because for a while, like, the internet wasn't really like it is now, you know what I mean? Like, Instagram was, like, brand new. I didn't, I didn't have Twitter or anything like that. So I didn't, like, really talk to anyone except for my friend Evan who lived across the street. So the only things I found out were basically through him until I met all the people in Pensacola and they were like, oh, have you heard this band? Have you heard this band? Have you heard this band? And then it just kind of snowballed from there. What do you think What do you think really drove you to that, all that music in general? Uh, I'd, I'd, I couldn't even tell you. I really don't know. Like, I don't know. I just liked it. Like, definitely once I found out about the whole straight edge thing um, – that was a huge thing for me and still is to this day. Um, like I, I didn't grow up with my parents. They have been on drugs like my whole life. Like my dad's still in prison right now. My mom's been in and out of prison, stuff like that. So, and, and when I was young, I definitely thought like drugs and stuff were lame because of that. So when I found out like that was a part of it, I was like, whoa, this is like, I don't know. It's like you've heard a million times. Like you didn't know that people had that same mindset, especially on the scale that it is within hardcore music. And then you find it and it's like, oh, I, I've like fit in somewhere kind of, you know, not to sound like the stereotypical hardcore kid, like, oh, I didn't fit anywhere. But like in reality, I didn't. I mean, like, like I said, I didn't really have friends in high school. Like I ate lunch by myself every day because like I said, most of my friends were a little bit older or they just didn't go to my school. And like I didn't. And like I said, not to sound like a weirdo, but I just didn't know how to like go up and talk to like just a normal person from Mobile, Alabama. You know what I mean? It was just a little bit out there to me. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't would say you sound like a weirdo. I think a lot of the people in hardcore have the ability to relate to what you're saying. 
you know, this stuff doesn't this stuff doesn't just appeal to someone who wants like a square ass normal kind of like hang or they're, you know, they're listening to Iggy Breaky Heart or whatever country shit. <laughs> they're probably going to get missed out on the uh, on the hardcore side of things. So I, I think a lot of people listening will relate to not having someone to talk to or not even knowing how to break the ice and have a conversation in high school, especially high school is a hard time. Were yeah. you, uh, were you dressing like a square or did you try to like, did you have like a, uh, like a, like a look to make you look like you weren't like everybody else? Or was it just an internal thing? Uh, no. Well, so in, in where, where I come from in mobile, you wear uniforms at school. So everyone wears the same shit. At least for school, I was wearing that. Aside from that, I feel like I've worn the same thing for like 15 years. I just wear like some Nikes, a sh- shorts, and a band shirt. You're but as far as school goes, <laughs> yeah. Even even when I was younger, I don't know why. I just thought like Air Max, especially 95 Air Max 95s. I thought those were cool as hell, even when I was in middle school. Somehow, I don't know why or how that happened. But as far as school goes, like. You wore a uniform every day. You even had to like wear particular shoes, so everyone looked the same. Um, I don't know. I assume where where you guys live, uh, there are no uniforms. As far I as I know, probably they're probably they're probably at one point. Like I like you, uh, you met Kayla when Kayla started going there. This the, the gimmick was Dickies, well, whatever kind of Dickies you wanted to get. Yeah, the color or the actual school polo. And yep. they were trying to pull that shit off when I was a freshman, but that was still like nah, son. Most people weren't feeling it, and you didn't want to be the dickhead whose parents made you do it because then you got fucked with by everybody. So it was definitely. Yeah. I imagine now it's probably like the same thing. Uh, most people can get whatever kind of khaki and some form of polo shirt would probably be the most. But yep. Um. I like that you said sneakers because a big part of high school, I remember, was walking in the hallway and just waiting to see if someone's going to fight over someone snapping on sneakers. People, I used, to, <laughs> I used to get trashed all the time or whatever sneakers I was wearing at the time, and uh, which then made me just not give a fuck about sneakers as opposed to becoming into sneakers. I don't give a fuck about sneakers. Yeah, yeah. But I, I could see in the South, it's actually – Probably better so that way no one looks, no one looks out of place. Like no one looks like they they don't have money or this that and the other. It's probably it's actually like a good thing to keep everybody uh, truly uniformed. So when you're in high school, what part, what part of you is thinking like this isn't going to be my whole life and I'm going to do more? How much hardcore influenced that? And then when did you really start getting to shows and 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 how that change your perspective on things in general as you start actually going to shows yeah so i i would say i started like really really going to shows like i guess heavy like ninth grade year because like i said that's around the time when i found out that pensacola actually had a scene um and even when i like first started going i was just like like i said not to sound like a cool guy or something but i was like these people i go to school with are like so fucking normal like they do the same shit like they just want to get drunk on the weekends or like smoke weed like in the bathroom on campus or some shit like that. Um, and I would say the first time that I was like, wow, like hardcore is insanely cool is Edge Day 2011 was in Atlanta. And I remember Friday after school, uh, me and my friends from Pensacola who were a little bit older than me drove up there 
and we came back Sunday, and then I was back in school Monday, and I was just like, holy shit, like, I just went and saw all these bands on this weekend, like, and all this, and these dudes probably, like, didn't do shit, I don't know, and I'm not saying that, like, I'm better than them, I was just like, damn, hardcore, hardcore is insanely cool, and I'm just thankful I found it, like, I don't know, that was just a moment for me, I, I, I will always remember that, I was like, damn, hardcore is, like, crazy, like, I can't believe I, I just went and saw that, and now I'm back in school in Mobile, Alabama on Monday morning, you know what I mean? No, it's a, it's a big part of what gets everybody really in all the way, you know, like, if you're like, that, ah, it's not so bad, you wouldn't be on this, you wouldn't be on the show, you'd probably be a square by now, but it's, it's that feeling that you get when you're like, nah, these are my people, and I gotta stick with this, it's awesome that you went, uh, travel, that's, uh, even further up, huh, Atlanta, what's that? Yeah, that's that like a couple from, hours? from Mobile. That's about five hours with an hour time change. So six, really. Were you ever um, at a Mobile before that? Yeah, just to Pensacola. That was probably the first time I had went because that was 2011. No, I probably went a couple other places, but not like crazy far. Like going to Birmingham wasn't that insane. Like I said, my grandmother was pretty, pretty lenient. Like, she didn't let me just run wild, but she knew, like, I didn't do drugs and stuff like that. Like, she knew that I was just, like, going to hang out with my friends. But, yeah, Atlanta, that might have been the first time I went to a show in Atlanta, to be honest. And um, I was really excited for that. Uh, I was obsessed with Foundation at the time. Um, they were killing yeah. them. They were like yeah. It's 2011. That was, like, prime Foundation era, t- to me anyway. Especially as a young kid, like, I would listen to uh, – hang your head just on like the record on repeat. You know what I mean? And it was them down to nothing mindset, uh, face reality. So like for a kid in like the 10th, I was in the 10th or 11th grade. I can't remember, uh, the, what time of the year or it was in October. I can't remember what grade I was in exactly, but yeah, to be a young kid to go to that, it was like insane. Like I remember just standing up front, like singing every word to foundation, which thinking back is probably crazy. Cause there's probably people just getting the, you know, shit beat out of them, like, directly to the left and right of me, but I just didn't care, you know what I mean, like, it's kind of nice thinking about that before, like, you know, one way or another, politics kind of get involved in hardcore, and, like, people do things, and you're like, ah, I don't fucking, I don't like that shit he does, I don't like them, but, like, when you're that age, none of that shit matters, I didn't know anyone there but the three people I rode with, like, I was just there to enjoy the bands, and, like, I didn't care about anything else, there's no like weird drama or nothing like that. So that was like a defining moment for me, I would say, as far as hardcore. Like just realizing how amazing it was was that show. I think when I when I think about exactly what you're saying, there's times where I almost want to go back. <laughs> I want to go back to, hey, uh, you know what? Um, I don't know what's going on. I just love these bands. <laughs> yeah, one one hundred percent. That's if someone ever comes into hardcore, I think there should be like a rule where no one tells them anything for like two years. Let them have two years of this not hearing any of the the, the silly nonsense, the backstories, and and seeing the tribalism and the little coteries that exist because it's in that it's in that moment where you're finding shit and everything's exciting. You don't need someone to be like that fucking guy sucks. Oh, that fucking band sucks. <laughs> like yeah, you're just like. You know, and, and with the internet yep. being so prevalent now and so dominant immediately, you know, 
can sour people's really excitement with their extreme excitement, you know? Um, so when did you decide you want to start playing? Did, like, did that come way later or did you like say, I got to get a band? Like, is that something that comes soon or is that chrono- chronologically later on? No. So I, I did bands kind of early on. I, like, I want to say maybe 2011 was the first time I did a band. And we just kind of played locally, like, it definitely did not sound good, but, like, it was just, I don't know, we were just young, you know, making music. Um, But I didn't take it, like, I guess kind of seriously, or even try to, like, start seriously playing drums until, like, 2018 or so, maybe 2019. Like, before that, I didn't own a drum set or anything like that. I would just kind of, like, practice on my friends and shit like that. Um, But, yeah, so I got into playing it kinda when I was younger but I didn't start taking it like seriously and I mean seriously as in like actually practicing my instrument until years later when you when you think about the early bands was it just was it just uh just friends that weren't even really all the way into hardcore like because you know a, a big thing I always say about early on in young bands is you can find a, you might be able to find a guitar player you might be able to find like you know two out of three Maybe even, but there's always going to be that one or two guys that he's not really into hardcore, but he's the one guy we know that can play this. One hundred percent. You, yeah, you, uh, you nailed it exactly. Um, there was this kid named Mason who went to my high school, who I kind of knew, and we found out he played guitar, and we started hanging out with him a little bit, and he like kind of got into it, like he like trapped into rice and other shit. We showed him. But he, I don't know, I mean, you know it, like, there's some people, they just don't get it. Like, it's just not going to click for them the way it did for me and you, you know what I mean? And that's just reality of it. So, yeah, when you're in Mobile, there's a lot of, because as you can imagine, the options are very limited. So, it just, you kind of take what you can get, so, in that aspect. Was there ever, like, stuff that wasn't hardcore that was going around that you saw and didn't like fuck with like i remember especially at the end more of the mid 2000s i remember the atlanta band love is red and they had goofy ass fan base in like these weird places only in the south because they're from georgia and i remember asking them like oh, where the f- you guys playing fucking like alabama and shit and i remember them being like oh birmingham's big and i'm thinking like the only place we ever played was, you know, like, what the fuck? So, like, was there, like, was there stuff that wasn't hardcore jumping off anywhere? Or it was everything that you were fucking with had to go to Pensacola to really get started with it? Yeah, so as far as, like, live music before hardcore, um, there's this big music festival that happened in Mobile every year called Bayfest. And it would be bands like, I don't know, like, fucking Corn would play. Uh, Disturb would play, but also like Nelly and Ludacris would play. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. Um, and that was like my only experience with live music. Like I, I'm sure there was other bands around me in the area, but I just had no idea they existed. Like for years, that was probably the only like live music I ever went to was Bayfest, and that was just once a year. And I remember uh, I saw some cool stuff. Like I said, I, I saw Alice in Chains there. Uh, seeing Corn was like cool at the time definitely but as far as other bands like local bands i had no idea that was nowhere on my radar whatsoever yeah i could imagine i i i have friends who live in the 
different rural places in the country. And I've heard some wild, funny stories about like bands playing near the state fair and shit like that. So I didn't know, I didn't know if there was anything like that in Mobile. But um, going on to, at some point there had to be this thing that really struck you that you wanted to take hardcore further or was it you got out of high school and you decided to move? Like what came first? Like I'm going to do this more. Cause I know some people move to cities solely because they have a better scene where other people are like, I'm out of school. I can kind of do what I want. Like how did, how did that um, progress go with your life? Yeah. So when I graduated high school, I was very like lost, I guess you could say like, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Like, the thought of moving somewhere, and I did want to move because you can imagine, like, when you're super into hardcore, like, Mobile, Alabama is not the spot to be. Um, and I don't know. Like like I said, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Nothing nothing made sense. Nothing I, I could see myself doing as a career. So I kind of just stayed stuck in Mobile until, what year? Uh, 2017. Um, oh, all right. That's, yeah, when all that stuff happened with my house, and I was kind of forced to move. And um, I'm sorry, my... that I didn't. I, I for some reason I thought because you guys were like traveling and shit, I, I, and now thinking about it, um, do you want to talk about it or you just want to like yada yada over that? That's totally your no, call. No, no, no. We we can talk about that. So, um, well, there's a big gap there then between 17 and shit leading up to it. So let's go back and then we'll walk our way into it. Yeah, yeah. So basically, like I said, I was kind of just like lost in life, I guess. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do career wise. Um, so basically at that point, I just kind of like traveled to shows like we would go to Birmingham. Um, I would tour with with uh, Robert Goodspeed, like any band he did if they went on a tour. He just invited me since I was like in high school, literally. He was like, hey, do you want to go on this? I went on one and then I went on every single thing after that. And I still... Like anytime his bands tour, I still go with his day, you know, because those are my best friends and stuff like that. But around like 2014, Malice at the Palace started. So they started touring around that time. And basically I was like kind of halfway in school, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. So I was like, I'm just going to do this with them. Like I wasn't in the band. I didn't even sell merch. I'm the worst merch guy ever. I would just go and hang out. And that was, uh, I don't regret that. You know, looking back, that was a, great time in my life like some of my favorite memories you know just going across the u.s we went to canada once um what was kind of yeah. what was kind of the thought process as you're getting exposed beyond the world of mobile alabama with these tours like not just from a hardcore perspective but like a real life like how eye-opening was it for you as you start going beyond florida and the 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 connecting states, but you went further. How did you feel? What were some of the interesting things that kind of like made you go, "Oh shit, I can't believe this is like like this." Honestly, just like all of it, like just meeting new people and, and just being like, "I have to move." Like I don't know where, but like I I can't just stay in Mobile, and I never planned on staying in Mobile forever. But like I said, I was like, I was just confused. Like nothing interested me in a career. Like, I just couldn't think of anything, like, but then going to other, other cities was definitely a culture shock, because, like, like you mentioned earlier, like, Alabama's, like, a a relaxed, like, kind of just chill place for the most part. You know, there's some crazy shit, but there's crazy shit everywhere, but, like, honestly, the biggest culture shock that sounds funny but was going to different scenes and just seeing them mosh and just beat the shit out of each other, you know what I mean? Like, 
that just didn't happen where I really came from, as weird as that sounds, stuff like that. But I would say just everything, like the bigger picture, like I was just like, man, I got to figure out what I want to do and just leave, like at the very least, move to Pensacola, which is where I live now. And I love it here. It's 400 times better than Mobile. Um, and that's no exaggeration. So, but yeah, just, I don't know. Like I said, I was just very confused and didn't know what to do. So I was just kind of living in the moment, going on any tours I could just hanging out with friends. Like I said, I was like in school, but not taking it seriously whatsoever because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Bob Wilson was like a influence on you at this point. Nah, he's never influenced me on anything. So, <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, I, I remember the first night Bob I met who? Bob. I remember the first night I met Bob. I want to say it was 2013 outside the handlebar in Pensacola. And uh, the girl he was dating at the time I knew, and she was like, hey, this is my boyfriend, Bob. And he definitely looked he, – he, he will deny this, but he definitely looked at me, and he was like, who is this dumb motherfucker you're introducing me to? Like he had like a, a look of disgust on his face, and I, I knew who he was like from the bands and shit he was in. So I was like, hey, blah, 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 like nice to meet you, and that was the end of it. And we didn't really become friends, I want to say, until like – the end of 2014, but I met him in 2013. I raised him well. <laughs> I love that. I, I'll never forget the look on his face. He literally looked at me like I was an alien. Like, and I probably did look ridiculous, but still, it was. It, it's say, funny why to think say back ridiculous. We were okay. Like I, and shit. <laughs> well, no, because we we there was just a show, and I remember I was wearing like this obscene cutoff t-shirt and i was drenched in sweat from moshing to i believe alpha and omega was playing the handlebar and i definitely just looked like an idiot like a dumb kid you know what i mean so he was just probably like why are you introducing me to this kid but yeah we're, we're cool now so it doesn't matter that's awesome i think uh i've always wanted to hear a perspective of what Bob's presence down there did for people like you and Robert and all them other guys. I mean, it, it, it did a lot. Like, I mean, as you know, now, like, I mean, I'm in payback and off the tracks and Bob moving here gave me, um, friends that I will definitely have, you know, for life. Um, that's the simplest way to put it. I mean, he introduced us to like Andrew accordingly, of course, Marty, all the, all the agitator guys, Tyler Mullen, uh, Keith, just all of them, like, and when we all met them, we were just like, wow, the, these, like, we just meshed so well with those guys. It was literally like we were destined to be friends or we, it was like we all went to high school together. It was very strange. And I mean, those are still like my best friends to this day. Like I talk to them every day. Uh, Carl, like I said, all the agitator guys, Kev Hare, all them. So doing that did a lot for us. And Bob living here also did a lot because he just knew so many people. So we had like a lot of shows coming through at that time, like stuff we wouldn't probably normally get. And I think that still had a ripple effect to this day. Like there will be like, you know, bands, maybe older bands talk to younger bands are like, yo, you need to play Pensacola. Like we played there uh, a few years ago and it was, you know, awesome. So I think that honestly, like I said, did a lot for us. It made people realize that we had a good scene, even though Pensacola is not like, unknown place like i feel like when people like oh we're touring to florida they're going to like miami jacksonville maybe tampa but now for the most part people are like oh we got to stop on pensacola on the way since we're going down anyway you know what i mean um were you at the first fya 
No, I was not. So what year was the first 13. FYA? 2013. Yeah, that was That's I was probably Yeah, I was just I just graduated high school and I don't remember why, but I was not there. Maybe because I was or I definitely had never been to a fest at that point in time. So I don't know if I was like that seems insane. Like I I can't do that or something weird like that. I don't remember, but I ended up not being at that one. I actually I don't think I didn't go to the first two, but I was at the third. Oh, the um, 2015, the one that was uh, I, what was that? A, that was a, that was like the first time it was not in Orlando. Or, yeah, I think it was at the that was the first year it was at the Orpheum, if I remember correctly. I might be wrong about that, but I think so because year two was like the weird ass basketball gym where the videos are like neon green. All right, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, it was in Florida. Now yep. that's probably another reason. I mean, it was Tampa, so it's even easier than going down to Orlando. Yeah. So perspective-wise, it's your first fest. Um, give me a lowdown. How did it feel? What was it like? I don't know. Like it's just, I, it's hard to say. I don't know. It just it's overwhelming. Like, especially when you're kind of that young. Like, you have so much more energy, but also it's just like I'm gonna watch bands for twelve hours today and tomorrow. Like. At the time, I and I still love it, but it was probably just like a, a not a, a culture shock isn't the right word, but just like this is crazy. Like, and then we're meeting people from all over. You know, that's when like we were already friends with like uh, Andrew and all the agitator guys at that time. So it was kind of like a time where we just started to see people we didn't get to see that often. Like a fest is now, you know, like FYA or this is hardcore. It's uh, it's about the music, but it's equally about just getting to see friends that you know you only see maybe twice or three times a year if you're lucky. What do you think, uh, if you're looking at this, did you see a shift in the Pensacola shows? And not just in the Pensacola shows, but the area? Like, would you say that FYA brought just more to the overall regional table? Like, were there bands starting to pop up after after those first couple fests? Like, was that something that was happening? Uh, 100%. I think that was, like, what I would... Like, I'm trying to think of the, the right years. Maybe, like... 2015, 2016, 2017-ish. And maybe like 2015 to 2018 was like the golden era, at least in my my generation for like Florida hardcore. Because, you know, you had like the older bands back in the day, like people respected, obviously. And then I feel like Florida kind of got shit on for a while. You know what I mean? Like it was like bands like people thought of Florida, they thought of like the Red Baron or like bands like Bishop and stuff like that. And they would just like talk shit on them. But then like Lennon and his squad and Rob, like cold hearted was around like losing it. And then eventually blistered. Um, and just, it snowballed on from there. Like be all end all now, more recent one Envision, vision, seat of pain, stuff like that. Sandman at the time, uh, people were just like, I, I don't, this, I don't want to sound like, I'm like boasting or something. But I think people were like envious of Florida scene. Like we had a lot going on at the time and FYA definitely helped that. And I think just like, sh- like shown some light on bands. Like, yeah, there are sick bands from Florida. Like it's not this desolate, like, like wasteland that people not from here thinks that it is. You know what I mean? Well, there's also a shift. So like you brought up the whole foundation thing. Uh, Atlanta had, shows more prevalent because of venue stuff and some bands coming around and then 
as the foundation things aren't wearing out, guys are moving away. Scenes that don't have like deep roots and generations of people really pushing to keep it going, things die off a bit. And mm-hmm. it's at that moment when things are dying off a bit that this fucking Bob Wilson guy comes out with this FYA down there and really puts in a, a really uh, infusion of life into a, a scene. Florida is a wild scene because it's not one scene. It's not, you know, like from years of playing there. I mean, the first time we went down to Florida was 2001. And there's so many different pockets where the, the scenes exist completely independent with very little interactions with each other, with the exception of Orlando and Tampa. You know, like, we would go as far down as West, West Palm, you know, and they would be like, I ain't going up to Orlando, yada, yada, and vice versa. Yep, you know, for sure. There's, there's Jacksonville, there's Gainesville, there's uh, Daytona, there's even um, those seven-star kids and the big Christian uh, Christian. Christian thing. I'm trying to remember the fucking name of their town, but they they had like a, a, a totally different thing. We played with Ringworm, and I always felt like there was like a shotgun blast of hardcore stuff in Florida, but mm-hmm. it's not really all connected. And then from mm, my perspective, yeah, I would agree. Watching watching life get poured into Florida hardcore, and even out to like oh, Alabama and whatever else, you know, uh, it was impressive, and um. Another thing you mentioned, which is really important, is like every time there's a new fest, it does drive traffic of bands that have to get to and from wherever the fuck they're at to wherever they got to be at. So it just it, it really does create this water wheel of activity, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to explain Florida really quick, it, it's it's kind of weird. So I live in the the top is North Florida as you can go. Like I'm right by the Alabama state line. And so, like, here, if there's a show, like, it, it doesn't matter if, like, a punk band was playing or, like, a metallic hardcore band is playing. All the hardcore kids here are going to go to it. But now, as you move down south, as you progressively move to, like, all the way to Miami, it, it gets to be different and divided, like you said. Like, in, like, different parts of South Florida, like, there's only, like, the punk-type hardcore kids, maybe. Or, like, there's kids who don't fuck with that. You know, like, they only want, like, heavy stuff. Um, but in Pensacola, and I would say even Tampa, um, it's just like a hard, hardcore kids are going to whatever, like they don't care. But yeah, as you get into these bigger cities, they kind of have the luxury of picking and choosing what they want. And, uh, I would say, unfortunately right now, like Florida is kind of in like a, not like a dead period, but it's definitely like dying off a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, which just happens, you know, it, it's just, it comes in cycles, but, uh. Yeah, so, but FYA still shines light on Florida and still makes people realize, you know, like, we have sick bands going on, so I'm thankful for Bob for wanting to do it here in the first place. Well, I mean, again, it it also goes back to people being open and interested in doing it, you know, like, um, people weren't going to go. There's been stuff that they've done and it failed, you know, all yep. over the place. So it takes a lot of different formula ingredients to really make something pop. But I'm glad that you gave us that perspective because I've, I've seen from my own viewpoint that that FYA is really just given a charge down there. And then obviously you talk about Lennon. When was the first time you started hanging out with Lennon? Uh, so I met Lennon probably in 2011. 
um, because he was friends with Rob Goodspeed. Um, just because, like, I don't know how they found each other, but it was like Lennon had his band Losing It at the time, and Rob had his band called Cold Hearted, and they went on a tour together and everything like that, and, like, we'd go down to Miami. I'd, I'd drive down to Miami with them, and they'd play shows with them and stuff like that, um, but that's the year I met him was probably 2011, 2012, and all those guys, um, and I'm, I still, I love Lennon, we're still good friends to this day, um, he's, he's a lifer when it comes to hardcore, so... Well, that's what I was getting at. It seems like you got this trifecta down there of you, Mr. Goodspeed, and Lennon. And that, and it has to be said that, that you guys have done a lot. Rob with bands, Rob with his venue at the time, um, you with bands, but also now with From Within, Lennon with his bands and his label. Um, it's a meeting of minds. And I wonder how quickly into the friendships and relationships you guys are doing stuff that you guys were working off each other's energies and like getting excited about hardcore, thinking about what you'd like to do, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and say like I'm a little biased, but I, I definitely in this generation, Rob and Lynn are the two most important people to uh, – aside from Bob doing the fest in Florida, they're the two most important people to Florida hardcore like by far. Like Rob was holding down the North Florida scene, Lennon was holding down South Florida, um, and, and Rob Rob is literally one of my like uh, quote unquote old heads. Like he saw me at shows when I was really young, like I said, and he invited me like to tour with him. Like he knew me, but not that well. Like he, you know, he could I could have just been another kid or something, but he was like, no, I see this, you know, this kid you know cares he comes to all the shows and i didn't even live like i'd go to more shows in pensacola than people who lived in pensacola and i lived an hour away so um rob does a tremendous amount for the scene he still does um he his venue is opening again it's just being renovated it's in a new spot so that'll be a really exciting for us but uh yeah rob and lennon really put florida back on the map after years like i said of people from my perspective kind of shitting on it you know, just thinking it was lame or there was no kids there, no cool bands and shit like that. I know. Remember venues always being either fucked up or in danger of being fucked up. And mm -hmm. it was, whether it was South Florida or the central or out in Tampa, but um, how hard is it with keeping venues nowadays? Minus so, COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So COVID did, uh, Rob did open up a venue called night moves and it was awesome. And in COVID, unfortunately, that had to stop just because, you know, there was no shows that could happen. So there's no way to keep the building open. You know what I mean? Um, right now, we have one spot called Easygoing Gallery that's pretty cool. Like, they they are not like hardcore kids who run it by any means. But, like, they know what hardcore is. They know, like, people are going to be dancing and shit. Like, they, they think it's cool. So we're, we're fortunate right now. And like I said, uh, Night Moves is opening up. Um, it's going to be really nice. It's in a place, uh, a legendary venue in Pensacola called the handlebar. It's going to be in that building. So, um, we're really fortunate for that. And Rob is running that. Um, like I said, he does a tremendous amount for the scene. I mean, you know what I mean? Like I know it happens, but how many people do you know who just open up a venue for their community, you know, so that he knows he can have a place to book a hardcore show. No questions asked. You know what I mean? Like he, he just goes above and beyond and we are very, uh, 
quote unquote blessed Pensacola is that we have him and he still cares after all these years. No, especially when things are in limited supply, such as labels and bands. And, and now we're talking about venues, the people that step up to the, to the task and bring that forward really have to get a little accolade from everybody because without them, if they're not building it, people can't come. And then if there's no shows, that's where that water wheel goes dry, you know? Um, yep. Now thinking about this, when you started traveling up to the East coast, just for shows, not just touring, what do you think your, uh, your first thought was like, I need to get my life together. I need to get a band I need to do label. Like how did you balance the two? Because you go from one to an extreme other in a, in a few years. Yeah, so when I started uh, coming up to Philly a lot, just basically to hang out, was was kind of around the time, maybe a, a little bit before all the stuff happened with my house. Um, like I said, I was just kind of, I was still didn't really know what I wanted to do, and it was for whatever reason very cheap to fly in and out of pensacola or mobile to philly or whatever it was especially when i lived in nashville it was so cheap so there'd be a show and sometimes i would get a round trip ticket for 30 dollars. you know what i mean so i was like i need to just like go up there and i don't know it was just hanging out like i was good friends with everyone at that time so it just seemed something cool to do and then i just kind of kept going back because it was so cheap and stuff like that and just kind of went from there and then payback started and all that now, it was at my 20th anniversary show of doing shows, um, which was like December of... 2017? Yeah. Was it December 2017? Yeah, it was December 2017. And uh, for me, um, we went to eat after, and then I got told what happened with your family, and it just fucking blew my mind and then it's been five years so it's hard for me to recall but were mm-hmm. you aware of this at that show or did you get told after the fact oh no i got i got told um that morning so the morning so, after or the morning of no the morning of the show like the night Jesus of the show christ yeah so and it, it now, was that's uh, what i do recall that thank you for reminding me yeah so um uh a lot of people know if you don't know me or whatever but Basically, I was in town for that show because it was it was a crazy show. It was Judge. Oh, yeah, we went to Jiu-Jitsu in the morning. Yeah, we went to Jiu-Jitsu in the morning. Then you helped us set the church up. Like you were you were it rolling was, hard with the squad. Yeah, it was Judge Cromax and All Out War, and um, my so my my house burned down and my family unfortunately passed away inside of it because of that. And I pro- I would have too if I you know randomly wasn't in Philadelphia for your show. But yeah, I got the call that morning and I basically just like went into shock, I guess you could say. Like it was it was like inconceivable to believe, you know what I mean? And I Bob was asleep. Like I was at Matt uh, Matt Carl's house and I just like had to leave the house. So I just like was walking in Boyertown and I called my uh, girlfriend who's my wife now. And told her, and I was like, I gotta come home, but there was no, like, there was no flight really to the next day that made sense, and I didn't feel like getting on a plane, so I was like, I'll go to the show, like, I don't know, like I said, I was in shock, it, 
it was just everything seemed you know it's like a tragedy happens it nothing seems real you know what i mean it was kind of like i was just floating so i went to the show and then i went to the airport at 6 p.m 6 a.m the next day and then went home and dealt with all that but uh yeah that was that was easily the worst day of my life so and i yeah i don't know crazy to think about now but um and I'm not saying I'm lucky by this in any means, but if I had not have been in Philly for that show, I definitely would have died in the fire as well. I'm, you know, almost 100% certain. So, you know, I guess, like I said, not that I'm lucky because of what happened, but I guess it can always be worse. I don't know how to word it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it just befuddled me. And then I just thought about whatever strength you had in you to get through the day get through that show. I mean, fuck man, that, that was dark, but yet I have to wonder if coming home from that gave you either like a spark of like, I love hardcore and I'm going to still do this, but I'm going to get my job shit together. I'm going to wife up this girl. Like what was that thing that made you do this as you really started after the fact, really pushing forward in hardcore too? Yeah. So I started the label not long after that, but yeah, um, like pretty soon, right? Yeah, so I, I that that was just like by far the worst time in my life. Like, um, I came home and me and my wife have been together ten years now, so it wasn't insane at the time. But she basically was like, "Yeah, you're like she she was in pharmacy school at the time, so she still lived with her parents." But I knew her parent. Like I said, we had been together like six years at that time, so her parents knew me. You know, we were it was like my family too. So they were just like, "You're moving in with us." And I went to the house, um, and I got what few belongings I could, and then I basically went to Pensacola, and I never have gone back to look at the house or anything like that, just because I don't know like what my reaction would be. And then shortly after that, um, my wife was graduating pharmacy school and got a residency uh, program in Nashville so she could be a do clinical pharmacology and all that. So then we moved to Nashville, and that's, like I said, that was just a, a rough time in my life because all that stuff had just happened, and then I'm living somewhere where I had no friends, but like, and I wanted to go with her, of course, but like, even if I wanted to stay, you know, what 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 would be the point, you know what I mean? Like, my house just burned down. Um, I didn't know what the hell to do, so I moved to Nashville with her, and it was just really, it was really depressing because I had her, of course. And if I didn't have her through all this, I definitely probably, not to sound like insane, but I definitely probably would have killed myself. So I'm very thankful for my wife. But um, Nashville was just depressing. Like, I didn't really have any friends. Their jobs all revolved around them traveling, the few friends I did have there. And my wife was in a residency program, so she was just busy literally 24-7. So I was just alone all the time with all that shit that just happened. So it just wasn't a good time. Um, I had crazy anxiety and stuff like that, and that's when I decided to do the label just because I wanted to do something more and I think just get my mind off stuff, and then it's turned into, you know, what it is now. When you had the first thought, I want to do a label, what did it come from? Uh, just wanting, like, I love, I don't know, I love hardcore. Like, I've done bands here and there, but I was like, I want to do something more to give back to the scene. 
And at the time, um, Robert was doing uh, the demo for his band, Burning Strong. And I can't remember if I was like, I want to do the label. And then he said that, or if he said that, and it was like, okay, I need to do the label. Because in the back of my mind, I always like, it'd be cool to do a hardcore label. Like, that'd be awesome. And then I had so much extra time on my hands and I needed to occupy myself. I was like, okay, we're, I'm doing this and Burning Strong, the demo is going to be the first release. And it just went from there. Um, I hit up Tyler, Tyler Mullen do the, drew the first logo and then I just kind of ran with it from there. Yeah. You've had a lot of, you've had a lot of releases quickly in terms of what did it start at the end of 18? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds accurate. Somewhere in 2018. Um, at first, I definitely was putting a lot out, and I wasn't just like putting like, like if I didn't if I don't like something, I'm not putting it out. It's still to that day. Like I don't care what it can do for the label, but I was like, I want people to like know about From Within Records. Um, so if I liked a demo, or if my friends had a band, it was like no question. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll put I'll do a tape for that. You know, no question. Like uh, Burning Strong was the first release, and then I did the Payback uh, demo. And then like mobile terror unit and shackled were some of the earlier ones, and which, it's just gone is, from there. Which is crazy is it's like you're putting out records for bands up here, and uh, that was like the huge bridge, you know, like you're already tight with everybody, so you know you're like fuck it, I'll put my friends out, even if the yeah, in PA and Delaware and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and me being in payback was like the uh, I was like, well, obviously I should put it out, you know what I mean? Um. But yeah, just like I said, any of my friends' bands, anything like that, I, I was putting it out. When you think about doing a label, how much did you know about it when you first started? Absolutely nothing. It was uh, like I was just hitting up peop- anyone I knew who did some stuff like, how do I do tapes? How do I do this? Blah, blah, blah. And then people would give me tips. Um, I bought my own duplicator. And it worked for a while, but then it crapped out. So at first, I was just making everything myself, duplicating everything. Um, actually, the first duplicator I think I ever used was Anthony's. Um, Anthony, who plays in Payback, he has a, a really nice duplicator for whatever reason that he won't give me for whatever reason. And oh, yeah, and uh, yeah, so he helped me do the first Burning Strong Payback and the first MTU tape. And the first time I ever had those in person anywhere was at the um, the first bar- Unity Barbecue. That's right. That's that was right. like the first thing I ever went to where I was like had like a table set up for the label, quote unquote, and sold. I sold all three of those tapes there. Yeah, that was May 2019. Yep, that sound that sounds right. Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, May May 19 because that was like the last functioning year. Yep, and that that was that's one of my favorite shows ever. Like, I, don't, I could talk a whole hour about how cool that show was, but yeah, that was the first time like From Within Records was like selling stuff, you know, as a label, not just like on Big Cartel or something like that, but actually at a show. When you, I mean, obviously you have influences such as like other labels you like, but were you ever thinking of how to model your record label towards something like something you've seen before? Or were you doing everything like winging it, like every release, like learning how to do it? Pretty much just learning as a going. Like, I mean, obviously like 
you think about like legendary labels and hardcore like young blood uh bridge nine victory at, at a certain era and stuff like that um but as far as like i guess my own style or whatever you want to call it i just kind of was like doing what felt right as i went along you know what i mean i never wanted to be just like one sound if that makes sense like if I like a band, I like a band, which is kind of like where the one scene unity thing comes in. Like it's all hardcore music. I don't care if you sound like Turning Point or you've I don't know, you sound like Forced Order or something. Yeah, you know I mean, like it's all hardcore music. I I saw, and it kind of cracked me up. I was looking through the discography to see if there's stuff I didn't know about, and I saw that you had a release by a band called Carbonite, and now you got a release by a band called Best Car. And I just thought yeah. That was- I'm a big I'm a big mark for that shit. I like that. I like <laughs> I like that a lot. I think um the hard thing about being a label from my perspective has always been you have to have the money that you're willing to throw in a fire to help some small bands out. Yep. And that becomes a problem for some people as they roll into this thing. It's like, look, you're either putting this fucking thing out because you love it or you want to see it happen. And you can say, I don't know, 10 people could buy it or 100 people could buy it. But I feel like there's also this perspective from some, but not all, when they start these labels. Like, well, I'm not getting anything back from it. It's like, well, yeah, it's a hardcore record label. What did you want back? Yeah, literally. literally what if, if just a, a disclaimer, if you want to start a, a record label in hardcore music and you expect to get rich from it, just don't, don't do it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not burning money, but I'm definitely not. I'm not rich by any means off of it, so you know what I mean? You basically make enough. If you're doing good, you make enough to put into the next release where you're not stressed out about it. That's a very good goal when it comes to hardcore music labels, in my opinion. Have you left your releases on the, the like, hey, if I print 50 tapes, I'm only doing 50 tapes. If I print this many records, like, you're not, have you yet to get to the position where you're talking about um, when you're dealing, not with the comp, but like with bands where you're, you're going to keep something in print more so than let it roll. Like have you have, in thinking about as your shit has grown, have you thought about shifting in that way or how, what are your thoughts towards that? Yeah. So when I first started, I was very like hard headed, like this is a one-time pressing out of 50, blah, blah, blah. That's it. But now as I've been doing it a little longer, I'm a little bit more open to it. Like, like normally if I do tapes, I'll do like a hundred. And if they, if they sell out really quick, maybe I'll do a little bit more. I still like to keep it kind of limited because it just has more value, not in a money way, but just like meaning way, you know what I mean? Like there's not not like, I don't know, back to basics records, there's 4,000 different variants of something that doesn't even have music on it or some shit like that. But yeah, I'm a little bit more open to like, like I would love to do a, a repressing for the Warren record I put out last year. But with the way the pressing plants are, it's impossible to do anything right now. Oh, we're gonna we'll get to that. We'll get to, yeah. definitely get to that. Why he asked that is another thing I noticed that sometimes actually helps a label in the beginning is putting something out, people checking it out, and then not being able to get it. The, the availability being like, "Fuck, I missed it." Yes, I I would agree one hundred percent. It creates. I don't know if it's like quote unquote like hype or whatever you want to call it, but it's like. Yeah, like you said, it probably gets more people to check it out in the long run. Yeah, because it's unavailable. What's available, I can get it whenever I want. You mm-hmm. know? 
And then when it's not, like, yeah, people scrambling, they go on Discogs or post on their story or whatever, asking if anyone would sell a copy, etc. You know what I mean? How do you feel when you, if it's happened yet or when it will happen, where you'd see something go for a really high dollar price way over the asking price initially? Uh, I mean, for the most part, I think that that is stupid. But also, if someone wants to sell it for that much money and someone wants to buy it for that much money, who am I to say that they're wrong? I don't know. If someone's willing to buy it, you know, I mean, by any means, I guess, go for it. When you... Would you say that you had stages of evolution with this label where it starts out, it's a tape. Then you're thinking about doing this. Like, where do you think you're, where do you think you started at and where you're going? Do you see yourself in these different stages or not so much? Uh, no, definitely so. Because at first, like tapes are very, tapes and CDs are easy. They're cheap. Uh, you can make your money back, you know, pretty well and not have to worry. When I first started, it was like, Obviously, the goal was like, I want to have records, like I want vinyl, but vinyl is expensive. And like when you've never done something before, it seems so intimidating and scary. So at first I was like, there's no way I'll ever put a record out. Like it's it's basically three grand to do the 300 records right now with the way COVID messed everything up and all that. So it is a little intimidating. I mean, three grand is not like, you know, that's not like life changing money. But I mean, fuck, if you. If if you went outside and burned $3,000, you would not be a happy person, you know what I mean? Hell no. Yeah. So, yeah, it it like now I'm at the point where I can look at a band and a record and be like, "I will break even on this. I'll do it." You know what I mean? Well, I was going to say that to the next part. What are you looking for when you do these kind of releases? I like cuz I imagine as you have more releases and more things on the schedule, yeah, you're still going to help your friends out in some low capacity, but breaking even has to come more into your mind, does it not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't, even if I like, there's bands I love that I've put out where I'm like, I can't do a record for this band. Like it, it, it just, not that it wouldn't sell, it would not sell yet, if that makes sense. Like I want to see them maybe do a little bit more, like go on like some weekenders or, or just get out there a little bit more before it's, um, safe money wise, you know, to, to do a record and stuff like that. Where do you, um, how hip are you to the whole distribution cycle and has it, has it come into play with getting your uh, records out? Are you still doing most of the stuff completely independent without depending on some of the bigger, uh, or any of the, even the smaller distro so far? Uh, so as far as distro goes, I, until recently, have just been on the smaller side. Like, I'll send some to Days and, like, a couple smaller record shops. Um, nerds in Japan always buy some stuff. Um, there's a couple uh, European distros who always buy stuff. But um, I did hit up Rev recently because Bob actually told me that's, like, a, a great way because they actually send it out to, like, hit up record stores, you know, nationwide to send stuff. So I, I talked to them recently, and they got like a hundred records from me. So that's pretty exciting. Because um, I was thinking, like, if, if I'm on vacation somewhere or I'm touring somewhere, and I go into a record shop and there's just one of my releases there, to me that'd be like one of the coolest things on earth. You know what I mean? That's just cool. That's what it's about. Like some kid going in there 
and picking that up and being like, holy shit, I, I can't believe this is here. Stuff like that. Well, for the people listening, the good thing about labels who have some form of wider distribution is it not only expands the labels base and imprint on everybody, but also helps the bands. So it is like a cyclical thing. Plus it does help out when you have someone buying a hundred records because you know, you're not going to lose money on it. And then you just have to hope that they pay you on time for the release, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, And like I said, that's one thing as you, as I've done this more, it's not as scary as you as you think, because like you'll break, you'll almost always break even unless you're putting out a band that like no one on earth knows about. You know what I mean? But so it's definitely just gotten a lot less scary over the couple years I've done it. But um, yeah, if anyone listening wants to distro records from me, please hit me up because I'm down. That's a good thing that you said about uh specifically there is a lot of times where I see small labels take on bands that, yeah, you know, they could be cool, but no one fucking knows them. And it's a challenge. Have you ever had the difficult thing of telling like a friend or someone like, ah, I can't make this happen. Yeah, definitely. Or, um, just, I've had people that I like that they're in bands that I just, I just don't like. And they've hit me up about it. And I, I'm always honest about it. Not in a mean way, but I personally would rather someone be honest with me instead of being like, "Oh, I, I just, I don't, ha- I, I don't, I can't do another record or, or tape right now." I just be like, "Hey, you know, um, this is this. No offense, I just this music isn't for me, so I can't do this." Um, but yeah, I mean, I've definitely run into that more than once. Do you feel like in the modern day current thing going that sometimes because of the different people that you're friends with? are obviously all supporting each other that you would like to get records sometimes out, but other people have done it. And how do you find bands that are a little outside of what everyone else is grabbing? Or is that not your, in your interest? No. So basically I just want to put out anything I genuinely like, like there's definitely bands out there. Um, like age of apocalypse is a great one. I love that band. I, I still think they have the best comp song to date. Um, real quick, I, real quick, yeah. your side, Age of Apocalypse side or Pain of Truth side? Age of Apocalypse. I love Pain All of right. Truth. No Not offense, that. but Age of Apocalypse. Those two songs are probably in my top songs this year. I just had to ask because I brought this up to Bob before too. So continue. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a record I would have probably killed someone to put out because I love that band so much. But you know, I get why people want to go. Other places, or when I ask a band, they're like, oh, we're already doing this. I don't, it's not like a diss at all. I mean, it just, you know, it is what it is. Um, But as far as like looking for stuff, I guess, outside the box, I don't try to. Like, basically, my formula is if I listen to something and I'm like, the first listen, I'm like, okay, this is awesome. I probably will try to do something with it if no one else is or they're not already invested in another label or something like that. Well, it's the thing that I see is that there are so many bands now. Like in general, there are so many fucking bands. Yes. And so I feel like for the first time in a long time, there are so many bands at these levels, but there's also so many smaller, different labels. Like you mentioned, Days, Streets of Hate. Um, there's so many small labels that are able to take on 
and kind of help this these bands out at the at the level where they're not all fighting with each other to either get on like a, a death wish or a bridge nine you know there's more options out there and so it's inevitable that you're going to find yourself saying oh fuck i would love to put that record out but i'm also happy for my friend who did it and um but i wonder if you have to think as far as like you said i put out the things i like what point do you think you're going to get to where you have to think I like this and I'm not going to be stuck with 492 records because no one knew them. Yeah, no, I'm definitely at that point now. Like, like I said, if, if even if I like something, I do have to be like, unless it's like a tape, like a tape, if it's a demo tapes, you can pretty much always break even on and distros love them. Uh, people love tapes, you know, they're just cool to look at. They're almost like trading cards. Even if you don't listen to them, they just look sick. But as far as records, you definitely like, especially now, which like you said, we'll talk about, but it is so fucking annoying to do a record in 2022. It's, it's damn near impossible because of how much money you have to put up front to do it. So I, I pick maybe the worst time in history to start trying to press vinyl. I think that you, Sonny, and a group of people who are smart um, have to look at this fucking technology that we have now. Like it's just like, it's so dumb to me that vinyl production was created before a lot of technology. And yet we have things like nanotechnology and the computers that are letting us do this right now in the palm of our hands. And we can't figure out a way a faster streamlined, more widely available technologies for making these vinyls i i can't figure out why someone hasn't done it i mean i'll agree with you and i'm not i'm not going to pretend like i'm smart enough to know how to do it but like there there's basically two basically any place you want to get vinyl now on earth it's about a seven month wait or longer seven's like the minimum amount and it's just so hard to do a record because Say you do a record and it costs $3,000, right? Well, you have to put a 75% deposit down to get it to start going, but you won't see any money from that until you maybe put the pre-orders up five months later. So you basically have to have like two grand or so that you're just like, I can spend this now and, it, and I don't need it back for five months. And you know, most people like, especially with like, doing a hardcore label, which is like in a way a hobby, I guess you would say, or just something extra like you got bills to pay and shit. You know, people have lives like that's something you do for like fun and you're passionate about. So that it's it adds up quickly, you know, and I don't know, like I said, it's just really shitty time to try to do records. For me, I think of the cultural value of having vinyl. I, I am fucking mind blown of your statement about tapes or trading cards because it's like uh, I've overlooked them for so long but they are cool when my friends put them out and actually I stopped buying people's tapes just because I'm like I wouldn't listen when to play like, I wouldn't play them and I would hate to like nonchalantly just have dust covered cassette tapes where someone would really grab it and be like this is amazing you know I don't want to but yeah, I, I do think that the way it seems and and COVID's no fucking help. The supply chain's no fucking help. It, it really must be a task to even decide to do a vinyl release solely because you can't market the record on the right time. And I know everyone goes this, but 
it still makes it annoying. So do you still value doing shit like CDs and tapes or have you been frustrated by the whole process? No, no, I, I love tape because like a CD and I think CDs are cool. Like I love CDs, um, but I can get a CD and get 300 of them made, say, and I can get them back in four weeks. You know what I mean? It's just easy. And the same with with uh, with tapes. I could probably get them back in two weeks. So it's just very easy and like carefree. But especially with like hardcore music, having a record is like so iconic. You know what I mean? Like they look cool. It, it, the inserts are, you know, like any hardcore kid loves reading the, the insert to a record. You know what I mean? It's just awesome. Um, and yeah, it's just hardcore vinyl is so big and hardcore and it is like like i just got the payback of the vinyls and the records in yesterday and that's the first band i've been in to have a 12 inch or something like that and just like looking at it and holding it it's just like damn this is like insanely cool so vinyl is so big and hardcore that's why it sucks how hard it is to get it right now which is crazy because there was this place in tennessee that all my friends used to get their records from and it was like pennies on the dollar. Yeah, when I look at old ads for like Victory or Back to Back and it's like 7-inch, $4 shipped, I'm just like, that must have been a great time to be alive. And I bet you they the turnaround times were a few weeks to get a record too. Um, sadly, I think those days are probably forever behind us. So just so we're on the same fucking page here, how to look this up while we're talking about this. 1878, Thomas Edison was fucking around with the phonograph. <laughs> All right. Uh, so then the the next thing is pre-World War II, they were making records under RCA. That just tells you how fucking stupid this world is. Like we have this giant, massive industry, and I'm going to get crazy and say, and we could do it all in America – Another fucking plus, which is where the craziness of we used to ship some of our shit overseas. You know, like people can have fucking, we could be major fucking jobs here if someone would either step it the fuck up and refigure this out. So I'm going to blame Sonny Singh. I'm just going to go out there and say, <laughs> Sonny Singh's smart enough. He's wasting his time with these videos and he should just figure out a way to retroactively. Cause I see, you know, there was like, um, mini lathes and people who make like 10 records at a time. Like there's smaller yep. levels to do it. So it's like, if it's a small way to do it, there's gotta be a fucking larger industrial way to do it, to step it up. And I know obviously for those listening, um, when, when major record labels got back into the game, they basically can buy 500,000 copies. And that's, I don't think there's 500,000 copies of any hardcore record going up. If all the record labels in all of hardcore put out vinyl in one year, it still wouldn't amass the 500,000. It just wouldn't. It's not 500 no. LPs made. It's not, you For know, sure. like, it's not possible. So when you have several competing large, you know, world corporations that are like, I'm willing to buy 500,000 uh, or I'm bu I will buy 1 million pieces of vinyl. They're not going to care about you with your fucking 500 LPs. You're like 
literally you're 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 the afterthought. And the sad thing is, is for a long time it was the independent music scenes. The and, you know actually like hip hop and D and um, rave when they were before they went to digital, they were really big in keeping vinyl alive. It's a really sad that it's saying because now you know everything smaller is hindered by this. I mean, yo, know, I was saying the other day on the rule, I went to fucking Walmart. And they got like picture discs for records that I would like as a kid be like, wait, what the fuck? Like I saw a Purple Rain, Princess Purple <laughs> Rain picture disc in fucking Walmart. I'm like, wait, why the fuck is this? A, like, <laughs> like what? And then I'm like, is but here's the fucked up thing. When we were going all the way back to the beginning of your story and all the stories we talk about. Vinyl is so cool in that giant presentation, that like giant block of art can just draw you the fuck in. And then a picture disc, fuck, you see a record with all the cool art, you're like, all right, I need this motherfucker. This thing just looks cool. You know, like, so maybe by them seeding it into the Walmarts and selling the cheap vinyl, like they're building and they're building up the interest or keeping the interest, but it absolutely affects hardcore punk, metal, all the in uh, underground stuff in a hard way. Yeah, and, and like you said, and I'll... I'll stress this again. I don't know about the technology to make records, but if this dickhead Elon Musk can go to Mars soon, how the hell is it so crazy to make a record? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And, I, and there are end of, so there's two big companies basically. It's like Pirate Press and A to Z Media, from my understanding. Well, Skippy, he doesn't print. He uses a Czechoslovakian. Yeah, uh, they both use I I want to say the same plant in the in the Czech Republic or wherever. But and I think there's also these like younger or younger companies that do like independent vinyl, but I don't know if those two big companies like eat everything up where it's harder for them to get like, you know, uh materials to print or what. But I I've I've hit up so many places like, "Hey, what's your average wait time?" Oh, well, it's six to seven months, and it's more expensive than going to, like, Pirate Press or A to Z for whatever reason. So, like, it would be awesome to support, like, a local place. Like, there's a place in New Orleans I know that just opened up, but it's like, if it's just as long and it costs more money from a, like, business standpoint, it's very hard to do that. When I think about this, right, so... There has to be a way, and I mean, the sad thing is the time it would take to invest, unless people are really just fucking. I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm surprised some like rock star or somebody like a record producer hasn't put the investment in because it's it's an entire, it's an entire facet of an industry that would in, in, immediately make its money back. And I'm I was fucking mind blown. No one has been like, you know what? I'm going to put the time into it. Do I think Elon Musk could do it? I think anything in the world Elon Musk could do. <laughs> I just don't think that we could get him to be focused enough. I do think Sonny Singh's smart enough because he's an asshole. <laughs> well, then, Sonny, you got to get on this. I mean, maybe there's more to it than I know, but, like, I got to imagine if you started, like, I don't know. It just seems like a like vinyl is still big. Maybe not as big as it was in the '80s or something like that. But like, well, they also had still cassettes. Records. They, in the '80s, they also had cassettes. Yep. 
uh, I vaguely remember uh, the radio we were playing records on still having a slot for eight tracks at the time. And yeah. if you little hardcore kids start going back to eight tracks, I'm going to start smacking people in the fucking mouth. <laughs> yeah, like. Can't, can't get that level of analog fetishism to get crazy in the eight, eight track, you know? Yeah, I'm, I ain't about that. But the ill shit, I'll tell you what, like as a kid, I had a friend who was like super into like the big victory releases. You know, he ain't doing Hi-Fi Roadburner. But that dude <laughs> would get the cassette, the vinyl, and the CD for a big release. Yeah, and it was and probably cheap to do it too. I just I think that that's one of those things that propped up some of the labels that you know get mimicked now is the fact that they had the multi-format release. And so getting back to how this affects from within, if you're like, yo, I can do the tape to a CD, but you're gonna wait, you know, um, I guarantee you, there's that fucking there's other labels in different markets that are like. You know, if you take like a Century Media, you know, it's going to make some hardcore bands go to giant big labels because they're going to have a better shot. You know, like, oh, well, we got vinyl. I guarantee like it sounds weird, but that seems like it, it, it carry on the stick for some, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of like you talking about the bigger record labels. That's kind of something that I have struggled with in a way like. Like you get these bands and like to me, a record label is about like it may sound corny, but it's about being like a family in a way, you know what I mean? Like that's your squad, that's who you rep, you know what I mean? And it's just hard sometimes like to get a band and be like, Are they gonna stay with me? Or are they gonna go just to a bigger label because I can't quite do as much financially? But like I'm never gonna be able to do those things financially if bands don't stick with me and we grow together, you know what I mean? So that's something that I, I've kind of dealt with, like, I don't know, like, you, if I have faith in your band, you need to have a little bit of faith in me, too. And, you know, like I said, we just grow together. So what I've learned, and this is fucked up to say, but it, it's a good thing to say. If you're a person who is helping a band, the honeymoon phase is, this is our due, we would do this, we would do that. <laughs> and it's happened every single time. Every single band has gotten to a point where, you know, there's either the declarations of, well, we don't need this guy in our, you know, thing, whether it's a business, uh, booking agent or the managers or in the case of a record label, like, nah, this is and it's exactly what you're saying, you know, like, you know, the, the victory bulldog's a thing for a reason. The rev thing yeah, is a thing exactly. for a reason. And what happens, though, is they don't see the glass ceiling. And there's always someone like, well, here's the thing. We love Carter. That's our friend. But don't you want to take your band to the next level? Next level, exactly. And then they don't see that glass ceiling coming up. And they just see, oh, man, there's so much more we could do if we just had someone else besides that fucking piece of shit Carter to make <laughs> us bigger. And then what happens is you get to a point and things aren't getting that much bigger. And then they're like, it's either it's what's crazy. It's either the booking agent or the manager, and it's like, hey man, you don't really need that guy. You know, you're paying him. What has he brought to the table to help you get to that next level? And it's this constant search for fucking the fool's gold of what the next level is. And few bands, the fucked up part is, the few bands that can reach a next level outside of the hardcore scene are hitting it almost naturally within 24 months of being a band. 
And it's like, yeah. you've been a band for five fucking years and you haven't seen a taste, touch of this next level. It's just a hardcore band, man. You're gonna, you know, you might get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, but like it takes the kind of constant work, dedication, deciding, hey, I'm I'm going to make this band a priority, such as an agnostic front and Madball in uh believe it or not, even in Ignite, even in these bands that tour four months of the year internationally and do two to three other US tours. Like you have to dedicate your life to touring to be a prominent, constantly seeing money coming in kind of band. You know, like and that's where your life is. And I think a lot of hardcore kids, especially now, think, well, I'm going to get this record. You know, look at these streams we got. It's only a matter of time before we just blow up. And then it's on easy street. It's like, no, it gets worse. Like, you know, like I thought that Jamie from Code Orange all the time. You know, like there's levels of this shit. You know, they're doing tours, but they still got to work. And I think people get roped into come with us. We're going to take you to the next level. Not realizing is. Every step is more work, and a lot of it's work with much less big steps. You know, like you, like this we talked about with the demo. The demo is the demonstration. Bands come out of it, the cassette tape. Maybe maybe Carter likes it enough, he puts it on a 7-inch. Maybe he puts it on a, a CD if it's that well-respected. Then you got to worry about the LP. Once the LP's out, whew, man, you got to work and let people know what that record is. That's another thing that's happening. Everybody wants a new LP every two years, but are they really working hard enough? So fans really are like, Want I'm tired it? of yeah. seeing them. I'm tired of seeing this band. We need a new record. Like I, 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 I tell everybody who's like a big hardcore fan, count the years between satisfaction and mind you, a lot of satisfaction already was old material that the band had been on the road with for quite a bit. Yep. We record it better. Look how long before they dropped the second record. Because mm-hmm. they worked it to the point where that band was synonymous with hardcore and they were really building their name up. And I think bands get told by the record label guys, I need another record out of you in like two or three years. And then the whole merch thing comes. And that's where we get back to you. We're like, well, you just work with Carter. <laughs> you know, you get work with Carter. You could build a good relationship with someone who's always going to have it. And I'll tell you, um, Reaper Records was a big thing in the late 2000s early two, uh, 2010s mm-hmm. and people were leaving like oh we gotta do something <laughs> bigger i would take being on a label with people that had my back and people that had the band's best interest and didn't go oh well you know you guys didn't hit this number or hey I, if i do it i gotta put out four t-shirts a scarf you know like all this shit like a lot yeah, of stuff exactly people, you know yeah and like that's like that like for a hardcore and we live in an age with the internet you were talking about like people are like we need new music because we live in an age where everything is like go 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 and there's so much stuff that comes out like you put out a record at the beginning of 2021 by December 31st you know 2021 people don't even fucking remember that you put it out but like for like hardcore bands like you're a hardcore band like when you say you want to go bigger it's like why like this is my personal experience. Like, if my friend ran a label and he sh- was interested enough to put money in it and put his time into it, I would just stick with him unless to the end, unless the label was just done. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't, like you said, like the glass ceiling, it's like we want, we want to go somewhere bigger. It's like, 
It's fucking hardcore music. Where, where do you think you're, where are you going? Like you do this shit to have fun and make music for like your friends and people to mosh to do whatever. Like this is like a release from normal life. Not, not to necessarily be like, I don't know, like the whole goal, like, oh, we have to be bigger is just so like lost on me that I, I just don't understand it. I'm not saying like, you don't want to be unknown, but like the music should speak for itself, not the fucking label. Well, so here's the thing that happens, right? All at war. Boom. There it is. All at war goes out. They put shit out. They do their thing. They have a sound that resonates with their fans. They stay consistent. I mean, fuck. It's crazy to say this. They've been around almost 30 years now. And they have countless great albums. And they've put records out on a various amounts of uh, labels. Mm-hmm. And we're one of the lucky ones that still survive post victory with a fan base. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not asking for yachts and, you know, they just want people to know the records out and whatever, but they put out small stuff. Death threat is a lot like that too. You know, like they were out on the bridge nine they did a triple crown first, you know, there's a lot of these label. I mean, and we use death threat and all at war in this conversation because people listen to this but everyone knows who the fuck they are still. So I'm like, oh yeah, that band, they had that one thing, you know, uh, you know, like there is a, there is a thing about certain bands just having quality music yes. and their live shows are just so out of control or so well revered that they can do what they want. Now that's not going to be everybody, but the opposite is also true. There's a lot of people that blow a lot of smoke up people's asses because without the, without this in this conversation, be kind of stupid well, some people book shows for a living. Some people book bands for a living. Some people manage record label band, record labels specifically who are at the higher level. They like to make money selling records yep. and selling merch. They sell, they make a lot more merch sometimes. And so their whole thing is to sell someone on the idea they can do better than the small guy because they want a piece of the pie. But I'm telling yeah. you, I've seen my friends leave labels, small labels, and then they regret it. Like I should have kept working with him because he was honest. He would pay and me. He's your, yeah. he's your friend. Like like yeah. I said, and I'll emphasize this one more time. Like this is my personal opinion, but like a record label, especially someone like you know runs, it's just about like the brotherhood, sisterhood, whatever you want to call it. Like like Bob's record rebirth. If if Bob put out a band I was in. You best believe that the Rebirth Records logo is going on any shirt, anything we ever do, like until the end of time. You know what I mean? That's just what it's about to me. Like I'm repping, like that's like my team. You know what I mean? That's what it. That's what it's always meant to me, and that's what I've. Because like in reality, in 2022, do you need record labels? You know what I mean with the internet? I don't think you. You I don't think you do. You need it in two senses, and this is where. We're going to get to the next part. Mm-hmm. A record label is a brand. Yes, exactly. And so everybody, everybody's got this fucking team mentality. Like, ah, uh, you know what? I, I really like Rev. Rev could literally have Ray and Purcell fart in a toilet for twenty <laughs> minutes, and it's going to end up on that god awful Rev podcast. Yes, like, there, there is, there is a lack of discerning interest in certain specific labels now i do like that certain labels have had separate 
uh, eras of uh, activity, like New Age is back doing some things. Yeah, you know, some people just do it because they do it. You know, that's what they do. You're not going to stop because they might have a time where they're not, but you know, it's still active. But a lot of people see rec- brand recognition in record labels. That's one. And then the other thing is, the idea is putting it out itself is harder work to do. And, and people then, are lazy as fuck. Well, what's crazy is, is like, you know, um, there's bands that legitimately have gone backwards. Like, you know, the the terror record, the last terror record was pretty much self-released, you know, self-promoted, you know, like there's not much to it. They re-recorded those things. They put it out. It sold. It did, you know, it, it did the business. And so people like the idea of also saying, we just got signed. 100%. <laughs> like, they want to tell me, are you signed? Because we're signed. And it's like, what's this fucking record label going to do? And honestly, the more a record label does, the bigger they are. There's a bill for all of it. Yeah, and like, I don't know, like you were saying, like, like well, what I was saying, like, record labels now, it, it's just like, uh, like, this is who I represent thing, like, because, you know, in reality, like, you could, you and your band could split the money five ways and print your own record, or you could make your own tapes, and on the other side of it, too, like, if you're a young kid or whoever in a band, and no one, like, will put your shit out, like, who cares? Do it yourself. You know what I mean? Like hardcore is about being like DIY, do it yourself. You know what I mean? It's like one of the biggest parts of it. Like if you do a demo and you believe in that demo and no one showed any interest, who gives a fuck? Start your own label, like put it out yourself. You know what I mean? Like there's like two, two sides of the coin. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Record labels are important in hardcore. I think they're like super symbolic of like what hardcore means and all that but like at the same time don't be scared to just do something yourself or start something on your own you know what i mean that's how i feel about it anyway no i mean that's the thing is is there's a gatekeeping thing also that comes with the record labels like well it's really hard for you guys to do this without and it's like man you could put out a record on your own you can go it'll take more work and you probably won't get rev's eye to look but the thing is if your record's good enough rev's gonna want to get it once they see everybody talking about it especially now rev's on the social media a lot they're always picking up stuff you know and and rev is uh, the reason that we keep talking about revelation records for people who do not know revelation records did not really continue to exist because of pure popularity of all the records that are sold from about the period in the late 90s to the early 2000s they started really getting to dealing with the small record lab, uh, stores in all the areas. But in modern times, there's very few distros bigger than Revelation Records for hardcore. So you sell your record to Revelation Records, and then they get it distributed to the stores. That's a huge part of how they stayed current and they stay involved is their distro catalog. And yeah. So, um, but you can also you get that put your record out and you pay a PR somebody. There's a bunch of different people you pay. They charge you like 150 or $200 a month and they get your band interviews with people. And then they get on this heat seeking chart. Number four, this record's going to blow up, you know? And then, you know, the, the weight of your record label, the weight of people involved in your team might help you, but everything organic that was ever really good and a band behind it working and doing the right moves is going to grow with or without our, our big labels uh, interest. You know? 
Yeah, and going back to kind of like the do-it-yourself type aspect of hardcore, like um, I'm only 27, so I'm not like I'm not young. I'm not some old fuck either. But like, I feel like the younger kids, like a little bit younger than me, it's like everyone thinks they need a fucking booking agent. And like, I understand the the place of booking agent for certain bands, but like, if you just put out a demo or a seven inch or something, and you haven't done a tour yet. You probably don't need a booking agent. Like, do you you use the internet every day? Just hit people up. Like, that's just one of the things recently that has like blown my mind. That Think everyone about, everyone thinks they need a, a booking agent all of a sudden. Like, well, because it's, they feel it's, weird. It, it, it's an arms race. So it's like, well, we got we're signed, and we have an agent. You know, and now we're gonna get a manager. It's like, oh well, there goes a lot of your money. Enjoy paying them. Yeah, like, like if you're getting a hundred and fifty dollars a show, now you're not getting a now you're getting a hundred. You know, like yeah, and it's just I don't know. Like I like like uh, that band Shackled I put out. I'll love say them. this because I love Dylan to death, but they have a booking agent, and I was just like, brother, why the fuck do you have a booking agent? Like. I'll, like, no, I don't even know who books him. No offense to whoever it does. I'm not saying it like that, but it's like, dude, the band at your they level. Were, they literally just capped them up. I thought they did, were doing it all themselves. Hell, no, they should be. Maybe this, Dylan, God, if you're listening to this, brother, he would fuck no offense to your booking agent, but ditch it, bro. Like, fuck you, Dylan, you motherfucker. <laughs> and you I, I, I love doing that. I love Shackled. I am not saying anything like this, but like just like scenarios like that. I just, I, I truly, I, my mind can't grasp it. Why it's, Damn. it's gravitated towards that in recent years. I'll tell you the only reason why a band gets to a point where they need an agent is when they don't do enough of the business with their band to understand what's good and bad. And then what happens is, and this is the other gatekeeping, we talk about the record label gatekeeping, the booking agent gatekeeping is that if you have seven bands in your booking agent, like um, like little coral, you know, like your group of bands, your roster, whatever you want to call it, you can write an email to everybody in the booking agent world involved with hardcore and be like, hey, I've got a band looking for an opening spot from this time to this time. Or sometimes you get a tour in your email. Hey, looking for submissions. We've got a tour looking to pay, blah, blah, blah. They don't ask. Sometimes they ask by names. Sometimes they're just willy-nilly asking for ideas. Like, who would you want to see open? You know, if you have somebody, submit them. We'll take it to our band and see if it's a good fit. So you have someone working to get them on a tour and everyone's like, oh, we're really happy these guys are playing. But it's like, until that email, the band who's the headliner didn't know who the fuck this band was. Or they said, hey, let's bring them out. And most yeah. people aren't hip to that. And so it, there's cases where a band knows what they want to do and has a lot of interest. And they're like, fuck, I don't know how to do this. So they get an agent. Another time is there's something in the social politics business part of the band where the band doesn't want one member to be the, the guy who does it or the girl who does everything because then that person has all the control and say. So to mm -hmm. keep things amicably neutral, a band will get a representative to see I'm not involved because blah, blah, blah. But as far back as anything I've ever get, there's always going to be someone in the beginning who gets the shows, deals with the money, knows the situation. And it's just that bands, again, uncannily would rather say to people, hey, I have a booking agent. You have to deal with him. And then they go, 
we're not playing, but we just don't want to say this. Or make sure that our 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 font is bigger on this fucking flyer. It's really weird, petty shit. I just can't really... think. It, it's the corniest thing on earth to me, if I'm being completely honest. Like, it just, it takes away so much from what hardcore is about. To me, per, how I feel about hardcore. I'm not saying that everyone should feel that way or whatever, but just me personally, it, it just, I don't know. It's some weird shit. I think um, it goes in it goes in waves, you know. And there's also bands who are a pain in a fucking ass to deal with because they don't have an agent. And I want to cross fucking choke them every time I see them. Like, yeah. why can't you answer an email? Why can't you? <laughs> why can't you just be like, you know, like it's it's like a it's a it's a guessing game. But I do believe that too often bands are are pulled into that world, and then what happens is, and this goes back to my hatred of a lot of bureaucracy. So you have a record label. They want to sell records. Okay. What are we going to do to get this band to sell more records? They're going to play more shows. How can we help this band to play more shows? Maybe we get them someone to help book shows and then they'll make more money and sell more records. Okay. That's what we need to do. And then the band needs to make more money or they're making more money and they, and they got to figure out how to stay everything on target. They got to pay the merch bill. They got to pay for the promo. They got to do all this stuff. So oh, here comes another guy comes in at every stage. And this evolution as a band's growing, the bureaucracy creates a creates a need for someone else who's not in the fucking band to do something for the fucking band. I'll say this again: every fucking stage when the band grows, someone else is trying to create a reason to pay someone else to do what your band is already doing. That's 100%. fucking bureaucracy. And the thing is, is these motherfuckers love being like, "Oh well, blah blah blah." Like it's crazy the amount of emails I have that I look at this and go. This shouldn't have been an email. Should have been a five second phone call. But people like the entire the entire concert industry is the same way, the same way the record industry is. Um on a podcast I did with Tim Williams from Vision Disorder, he said, Oh, it's great. You go get fired from one label or you deal with this guy. And you realize, oh, the same guy's over here working another label now. He's like, These guys don't change. They succeed, they fail. They just go down the street and work for someone else. Yep. And we're in the shitter. And it's the same way. Oh, well, you know, this booking agent stopped working with this band. They work with this band. They get this assistant and they move to this agency. A lot of the same people. And actually, when we're talking about all this for those listening, I know this, I hope this doesn't get too into the deep end of shit, but like we're talking about less than 55 fucking people from the booking agents that you have to talk to, the managers that we're talking about, and the record labels. That's how few people in the larger scheme of things are involved in from the lowest echelon up until probably some of the higher echelons, you know, in total booking agencies in America for hardcore or deal with hardcore people. There, there's probably about a dozen real agencies, maybe under. Yeah. That's where we're at. It's such a small piece of the pie. It's such a small parcel. And that's why this stuff happens. They're constantly building. And it goes back to what you're saying. You know, hardcore is inevitably going to grow. And the thing that fucked up about it is, you watch these bands when they're 17 or 18. I love hardcore, hardcore my whole life. X'd up. This is the fucking best. We're never <laughs> gonna change. We're the fucking most straight edge. And then it's like, what happens? 23, 24, they're wearing some whack ass Nirvana sweater, some fucking Grateful Dead shirt, yeah, some dumb shit like that. Mouth. They grew their hair out and they're like, we're just really past that phase. You know, we've really grown. And you watch it, and it's a trope, and it's the evolution, and it happens time and time again. So you almost can't even, you almost can't even blame them because it's like their influences are just repeating over and over again. Like, you know, the straight edge guy getting into the most drugged out music, 
you know, there, there are so many different avenues of like where this goes. And so it's inevitable that the dyed in the paint hardcore people often, um, they go that route. But you know, another thing, and I'll, and I'll speak a little bit on just a little bit of what I know, the terrorist stuff, the problem with record labels is, is they want to see constant growth. You know, they're not good if the record, if the same, like to me, I'm dumb. If you know, but I, I only book at the, you know, there's a finite number of shows and there's a finite number of show people that can pay to get in. So if every time I book a terror and they sell out the church, <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah. You know, terror's going to sell 550 for the people. That's good. In the record label and the other ones, like, oh, we need to get them to the next thing. And it's always the next thing. And it's that glass window. It's a glass ceiling again. And it's so, the, uh, the, the, sorry to interrupt, but the, the grass is greener on the other side. You know what uh, I mean? Absolutely. Everyone, everyone just thinks some, everything, if you go somewhere else, everything's going to be completely different. Like it, it just doesn't work that way most of the time. Yeah. For me, you know, um, I work with who wants to come and work with us. And I, I used to get really upset from time to time. I still get a little miffed when it's like a show. Like uh, we have Life of Agony and Doggy Dog and their agent. We don't really have a great relationship with it. So they're booking them at like a winery. <laughs> We're like, yo, or brewery. And my boy actually runs a brewery that shows. He's like, oh, you want to do brewery shows? We can do them. I'm thinking like, dog, why are these people just asking us to do a good show for these guys? There's going to be like 300 people at most. We have venues that size. We could do a good show for you guys. Yeah. So I had to learn to detach and I had to learn to say, hey, a band's going to work with us if they're going to work with us. And it's for the reasons that you're talking about because we're not going to fuck someone over. We'll work with you. I'll work with any band that just comes through. You get to the point where you're asking me for more money than your that I know that'll come in from your, and that's the other. That's a sad thing that happens on my end. A band that was always killing it doesn't know that they don't kill it anymore, and then they kind of go, "We're gonna go somewhere else because those guys will still kill." And I, I wish I had, a, I wish I had a dollar for every time a band was like, "Well, Joe didn't give us the guarantee. We went somewhere else," and it's like the bigger room, and then the bigger room hits me up. Hey, can we pay you a couple hundred bucks? Because uh, you know this isn't selling that well. And we thought they were blah blah blah, or they don't ask us, and then it does. We're like, oh, dude, they'll hit me up like, oh, what happened with that show? Like, wh why don't you guys do that band? I'm like, oh, because I, I I knew they weren't going to draw blah blah blah. And they're like, and I'm usually within a hundred people of the figure I think, and it's like, oh, they think that there's someone else will do better for them, and it's it's just a part of business, and that's the hard thing. And I'm glad that we got to talk a lot about this business because. It would be amazing to see you continue to support hardcore. I think the one scene ideal, and I want you to get, to get into that because my perspective is the one scene breaks everything down. It's not it's not about anything else besides you're here, you're at the show, you like the bands, you're a part of something. Am I correct? Yeah. And so for me, that's what was missing forever in the early stages of me going to shows because people like to be in their own niche groups. Like, Oh yeah, I don't listen to that kind of hardcore. And like there uh, was a minute now that all the stuff that you kids really love in the late nineties, the running joke was, Oh, that's Joe hardcore, hardcore. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm a 17, 18, 19 year old kid. I'm the one booking like the death threats and the 25 delights and the E towns here. Who would have thought years later everyone would love them? And what's fucked up is like, yo, bitch, like I remember getting clowned on. My flyers weren't that great. You know, I'm cutting up old weird zines or old stuff from like 
uh, Dungeon Dragons and BattleTech, and I'm writing this band graffiti and these stuff that like I'm trying to emulate. And it's that weird shit's cool though. But the thing is, is it wasn't what I was doing. It, people were like there was like a, a oh that's like Joe hardcore hardcore. That's not like the downtown hardcore. And I'm glad to hear that the people like you who are a huge influence, whether you want to not, you guys have had a huge influence as from within and from your bands making more young kids see things as one scene. Like I'm going to tell you having a band like Warren D spies payback and having that MH record all on your label that shows that you, you see that thing, those compilations you put out, Jesus fucking Christ. Like literally like that couldn't have came out at a better time in the summer. The first one, Mm-hmm. Because I had something to put on at work when I was like tired of listening to a podcast and just had to go. And what was cool was I wasn't looking every time the track would change. And I had to look in my car and go, wait, what was that track again? That fucking thing hit. I learned so much about bands. And I mean, like, obviously I work with Year of the Knife. I love when they play that track Dead of 29 now. Like, people go fucking nuts for that. Yeah. People go fucking nuts for that. And then it, it's like, there's something special about a compilation and I feel like a good compilation has a thing where you're going to hear songs you may not hear on anywhere else. And it's, it's awesome that I feel like the one scene unity comp exemplified that and actually put that back into the modern idea. Like this is the compilation. It's not a song that's off the record. It's its own thing. It's fucking fantastic that you revived that. Yeah. uh, Just to talk about that for a minute, like, uh, compilations are also you know like a huge part of hardcore to me like and i really wanted to like emphasize to the bands i was like this has to be a new song like i'm not putting a compilation out it's just like songs people's heard before like that's that's kind of s- stupid for what i was going for but yeah like the whole one scene unity thing it, it doesn't mean like you can't like bands like there are bands that i fucking hate but I'm also not going to be like, oh, that's not a hardcore band. You know what I mean? Like, on the first comp, you got Age of Apocalypse, Restraining Order, MH Chaos, and Choice choice to Make, back to back to back to back. And that's what hardcore is about to me, is like, we get to enjoy all these different sounds under one umbrella of music, and it's still hardcore music. And it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what some, like, cool guy like Dildo says, like... It's still hardcore music, you know what I mean? And that's what it that's what like one scene unity means to me. It like it doesn't mean that you have to be friends with everyone on earth or like every band. It's just like I don't know. It, it, I just wanted to showcase what hardcore music is to me and how many different sounds of hardcore music there is. And I don't know, I was just hoping to get people into a sound or a band they probably had never checked out before. And I, I think it worked for some of the bands. So, I mean, yeah. I also have to give you guys credit. I mean, I don't know what – I think you, Bob, Lennon, and them guys all have like a secret chat, like a secret devil-worshipping chat somewhere. <laughs> because every great band in the last couple years, one or all of you guys were hit to that shit quick. You know, like – it's it's right now. This is the time where so many of these bands, you guys are being aware of, and, and it fucking blows me away. But it's also great that you guys are, to me, pure purely interested in the bands 
and and not like uh, like you know being mercenary, being like oh there's a dollar to make here, and I think that's why everybody loves and respects what you do, what Lennon does, what Bob does, you know because you guys hear these bands and you just go hard out, you go hard out to support them, to tell people about them, and it's a rare thing, man. And it's like without you guys, so much of what I listen to now wouldn't even be possible because. You guys are the ones hyping them up, telling each other about them. Bob's put them on shows, put them on fests, let me know about them. It's fucking been fantastic to see someone without ego and without purpose of like, I can make money off someone help a band out, you know? Yeah. And like I said, that just, it goes back to like just putting out shit that I like. And, um, as far as like just finding new bands, like, uh, like hard, like I said, hardcore is like one of the biggest parts of my life like i get excited when there's a new demo out i want to check it out even if i don't end up liking it how will like how will i know if i don't listen to it like there's so many people in hardcore they get to a certain point they only listen to like shit that their friends do or something like like they they lose like the spirit to like check out a new demo you know what i mean and for people like me and like bob lennon and i'm sure you like when a new demo comes out, I still go back to like being like that young kid in like middle, I mean not middle school, but like the ninth, 10th grade. And there's just like so much excitement about a new band coming out. And it, like I said, it's, it still feels that way for me and is why I still find out about so many bands. Cause like I said, anytime I see something, I'm going to listen to it. If it sucks, it sucks. But I checked it out and gave it a fair shot. Well, I think the thing about that is, is, the fair shot goes away. And and what happens is, is if someone you're friends with is in that band, you'll check them out for a lot of people. Yes. Other times it takes people talking about the band. And that's what you guys do really well is, Hey, check this out. Check this out. Check this out. You know, like it, it's, it's important, you know, without you guys, there is no me knowing who the fuck Warren is. You know, like there's no Bob being like, "Yo, bring, bring that Age of Apocalypse band down." They're pretty sick, you know. And, and we're not talking about putting out flyers on the street, though. You guys do that, just clicking a fucking button, and clicking a button, fucking button can hit people to stuff. And what's fucked up to me is there are so many different people who love hardcore, and there's so many different bands that there really is something for everybody. And so I kind of I, I kind of have the easy chair because if you guys share something, I go, oh, this would probably be pretty cool. Let me check this out because, you know, like it's a thing. But I don't see everybody doing it unless it's for their friends. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and like, you know, I'm human. Like if, if there's someone in a band and I don't like that person, I'll still listen to it. But, you know, people definitely – you may go into it like this shit's going to suck. It's like, yeah, but if if you do that with every single thing you listen to, it probably is going to suck because you're not even going to fucking give it a chance. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. That's just my mindset with it. Now, being that you're a married individual, you have a full-ass job, um, at what point would you say that keeping the label manageable so you don't quit your day job is a priority to you? Uh, I mean, it, it definitely is hard cause I, I work, um, I work for an IT department at a university where I live and then I'm also still in school 
And then I also do jujitsu like four days a week. So it gets it gets to the point like because I don't want to neglect like the the progress I've made with the label so far. But it definitely uh, I don't know. It, there's just not enough time in the day. You know what I mean? So you kind of just have to make make time. I don't know. No, I think it's going to be um, an interesting thing for you to find a balance where, and, and also to keep the spirit in you alive. Because I mean, obviously, this is a big deal to you. You know, there's a big part of your life that yeah. everybody on the show say without hardcore, their whole life would be different. But it's going to be hard to balance making sure that you're doing the things you can do with the label, and also making sure that you're staying honest to your regular career your wife and probably down the line future little Carter's running around. And that's where it's going to, I think actually in a positive way, not having to rely on a certain release to make money so you can pay your mortgage and all this stuff. will keep yeah, your definitely. record label alive a lot longer than, you know, you would believe. Cause then you kind of have a, you have a ceiling of your own. Like, okay, if a band is really expecting me to do this and this, this is all the label can do for you. The rest is on the band. But also you're not depending on releases to make money not only for yourself and to put back in the label, but also it's a lot more, man. So I I, I do like the idea that this is something you love, but you're not tomorrow trying to become Tony Brummel. No, and uh, just talking about juggling stuff, I'll say uh, just give props to Sean from Youngblood. I mean – He's definitely older. Um, I I don't know how many kids he has, but I know he has more than one. I assume he has a career. And uh, Youngblood, to me, is such like a legendary label in hardcore and has been around for a long time. And the fact that he is like kept going for so long is like something I strive for. Like I think everything in hardcore has its time. But with that said, I don't ever plan to stop the label. Like maybe one day I'm like, okay, this is this is this has had its time in hardcore. And it should be done, which a lot of people in hardcore need to learn to do instead of like having their band play again and again and again and not calling it quits. But uh, Listen, yeah, Shadow just... Realm's only playing Florida because we're trying to help somebody out. <laughs> <laughs> but Sean Youngblood is just like a great, and I I don't know him super well personally or anything. Like I've talked to him, but I think he's just a a great like inspiration for a record label and someone who's done it right throughout the years. You know what I mean? Like a true, like in-house hardcore label. Now every aspect. And what I like about this label model that he put forward or continue to promulgate is that he, if a young blood band's playing and he doesn't have family shit or work shit, he's going, he's goes to the show. Exactly. And, and what fucking there's that guy Vince from around here. Um, he did, Harvcore, which was used to be yeah, yeah, I know Vince. Corp. So Vince really pushed a lot of bands out. He pushed a lot of bands out, and I was sitting there thinking. I was watching some bands, like you know, yeah. I mean, I could stay with Harvcore, but you know, what if I want to go and you know do something more? I'm thinking like, I kind of want the guy who made the record being so psyched to see and support the band that him and his wife and his kids come and they're there with you in the trenches watching shows and being a supporter of the music instead of being that person tabulating the amount of money coming in and being like, you know, last year they only sold this many records. They should be selling more because it's another one. You know, like I I like the old school standard of being behind the release because you put it out instead of being 
someone telling the band or the band's representatives like you need to do better because we could make more money yeah yeah i mean i agree and like i said that's why i respect youngblood so much i just think he has i just think he's done it perfectly and you know he, he i know he's not doesn't plan to stop anytime soon which is awesome you know i mean he's he's still doing it and it's just sick and someone that inspires me when it comes to like running a record label you know and he's which from within is not a, a straight edge label i'm straight edge but the fact sean's still straight edge and so passionate about it and stuff like that i don't like i said it's just um even if it sounds corny it's in it really is inspiring and i think he's just doing it right i couldn't agree more i really couldn't agree more well it'd be impossible for us to do this episode without talking a little bit about the upcoming fya so uh you play in some bands you putting out some bands that play in this. What is FYA like for From Within? I mean, that would be our like. I don't even know. I don't even know a good analogy, but maybe like it's the Super Bowl and I'm the home team or something. If I don't know, that may be an awful analogy, but you know, no, what it's I mean? actually like, a perfect one. It's absolutely like a perfect I'm one. I'm from Florida. Uh, I'm gonna you know I can drive the FYA. It's not that far. Uh, a bunch of bands I'm I'm playing it in payback. A bunch of bands that I've put out are playing it. I think it's like eight bands I put out are playing. So um, this one will be really exciting for me because the last FYA, you know, there was a little break because of COVID. The last FYA was like the beginning of From Within, kinda. So this one will be like the first FYA where like I'm an established label and I've like put out some things that people love. So I think it'll be really uh, I'm really excited. So. Yeah, that's my best way to explain it analogy-wise, what it means to me. I think um, I said it a million times that you guys are the tastemakers for hardcore currently. The stuff that you guys work for all year comes with fruition at the beginning of a year, which couldn't be a better time to start off people getting excited about hardcore and the new things to come. And it's like it's like the fucking um, like the Apple people get ready for a new iPhone drop. Yeah. But like you guys are dropping this shit at FYA and it really does become front and center hardcore for most of the year. I mean, it definitely took an influence in what we do with this hardcore and with Bob living here, Philly hardcore shows have changed dramatically, but I think it's a symbiotic relationship between you guys all together, being you, Bob, Robert, Goodspeed, Lennon, and what you guys have curated by listening to all these bands and being excited by all these bands that have brought all this stuff to the forefront. And so, it's a huge reason besides the fact that I, I, I love you as a person. I love your spirit. I wanted people to listen to a young guy who's not like 18, but not like 40, literally still happy about hardcore and still engaged in real life. You know, um, getting married is a big responsibility. You're still pushing yourself through school and yet you have all this time. I want people to hear like you can listen and be a part of hardcore in so many fucking facets. But what you're in, you guys have a huge impact and influence on hardcore right now. And for that, I'm just happy that you continue to do what you do. That's a huge part of why I wanted to have you on the show. Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And and like you kind of said, like uh, if if you love hardcore, you'll find time to give back to it. You know what I mean? Like people are like, oh, well, like I'm in school now, blah, blah, blah. I got a little bit older. And if you get out of hardcore, like that's fine. You know, I mean, it's if you think it's a young man's game, young woman's game, whatever, do your thing. But like for the people who truly love it, you know, like me and you, I'll say like 
it's just it's just effortless for me to check out bands and stuff you know what i mean it's effortless for me to go to a show um regardless of the night of the week it is in my local city or like travel to a fest because it's something that i'm i'm really passionate about and a lot of people will and will not understand this but hardcore is given like an insane amount to me and i know that's it's hard for some people to understand that because hardcore is not like a living person or thing but it has given so much to me and i just want to continue to give back to it basically and put out bands like make zines go to fya go to this is hardcore and just everything like that you know it, it's it's really easy to like support your scene and that's another thing like there's no competition like hardcore is a thing where everyone can be involved in who goes if you pay to go into a show you are just as important as a person who's on stage playing like i don't care what anyone tells you or makes you feel and i think that's what's like beautiful about hardcore is like it really is this just big awesome thing so no, not to make it sound like like hippie-ish because i'm not like that at all but that's that's how i would put it into words no i think you're absolutely correct it does take every aspect of hardcore and i say this about every time i play every person in the room if they're not there the show is different you know like it, it's mm -hmm. a unique scenario and i've said this too i've seen it two shows in the row same bands different night the shows are different because the people change yeah every person, a different vibe every person who pays to get in has an impact on the show and every show is unique unto itself you might have seen you know I can't tell you how many old hard Carl stories about seeing breakdown and every one of them is fucking different. You know, no one's really sitting there and saying, Oh yeah, it's exactly the same. Like, you know, everything is because it's a living, it's a, it's a living embodiment of what you put into it as a living embodiment of what happens when a group puts everything into it. And as a culture, it is the sum parts of everybody involved in it. So I love that you have been, an open source kind of like inviting warm person into this because I feel sometimes, especially record labels almost enjoy the branding stick of being exclusive. And, you know, we really only want certain people to get these records. And I think that you've done a great job of promoting new vibrant, awesome bands and being wide open to the world. So everybody gets a shot at checking them out. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, that's the goal. So if it's being perceived that way, then that's exactly um, what I wanted to do. Carter, uh, let's give you a nice, happy send-off. Tell people how to check you out. We're going to put all the show notes at com in case you can't understand what we're saying or you want to check out the links. And just thank you for being you. Thank you for kicking my ass in jiu-jitsu. Thank <laughs> you for I, – I, Marco was like, Carter's actually he's he's pretty talented and I was like I was like damn that's cool shit that uh when you went out there you, uh he said that but it was awesome it's awesome to see you still go you impressed me when Bob told me after the fact that you spent the entire time of the show knowing that weight and, and you were unfazed which is probably trauma shock but also you you're just a good person probably one of the better people that we've ever met which is why it's concerning how much you like bob <laughs> thank you i appreciate it um yeah uh if you want to see anything like for the label um i pretty much am only on instagram um and it's just from within records uh for everything coming up um 
Do you take the, submissions? Yeah, of course. That I think I have that in the bio, but if you ever want to send me a demo or if you ever want to like just talk about hardcore, you can uh, email me at fromwithinrecords at gmail.com or just DM me on Instagram, on the From Within Instagram. Um, the only Nothing to announce really coming up, but I will say that uh, One Scene Unity Volume 3 is in the works right now. And that'll probably be the last one just for a little bit, but there will be more. But yeah, three will be coming up soon. Can't wait. My man, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you've done. You are a positive force in keeping hardcore going. I love every time I see a new young kid bringing up one scene. Your impact has been felt much wider than Alabama. <laughs> you ha- I know it's a, it's an important thing, you know, like, it's easy when you're an East Coast person or a West Coast and LA person or a Bay Area person. But try being from nowhere. Try 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 being the only kid who knows who the fuck any hardcore is in high school. That's fucking hard. And a lot of people would have been resolute to be like, oh well, you know, it's a little hard. Like there's a ton of obstacles that you overcame consistently in your life and through your entire time with hardcore even now making shows still happen, making records still happen, getting over an absolute tragic, tragic, tragic event. And you're still going and you're still going hard, man. And so for that, it's important to say that, you know, like you've traveled far on this journey, but I appreciate your drive that you had to go on this journey. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on Uh shout out to, I guess, Bob Lennon, uh, all everyone, all the agitator guys, uh, Carl, Kev, all of them, they know. So Marty, love all those guys. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you, brother. Well, I hope you guys have really enjoyed that one. Carter's a special kind of dude. I mean, I I guess I can explain it to you that we're hanging out and we're doing jujitsu. Uh, the boys get something to eat. We set up the church like we always do. Get the PA's ready. Afterwards, we break down, we go to eat. Never in my fucking mind would I think that this kid just lost his entire fucking family to a fire. And, you know, uh, I was happy to be able to play his benefit show in Philadelphia for him. And despite the fact that he's rooted in the South, he's a part of Philadelphia hardcore, he's a part of Pennsylvania hardcore. In a lot of ways, he's a future of hardcore to come. And it's his spirit, it's his integrity, it's his want to keep things DIY and true to what the real vibe of the scene is and not some pro-core fantasy shit. And it's it's why I had to have him on the show and I really hope you enjoy his story. Make sure to check out From Within Records. And I hope you guys check out the bands he's in. Obviously, payback we've had on the show before, off the tracks we've had on the show before. Absolutely terrific guy. Again, I hope the people that are listening will be seeing us at FYA. Get to hang out, say what's up. If not, don't miss out next year, fuckos. Every year, Bob has a banger. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you to support the fest. Remember, um, if you want to, you can follow the Philly 8C Show's Instagram, Twitter, yada, yada, yada. You can also follow the This Is Hardcore Fest Instagram or the Twitter or the FYA Fest Twitter and Instagram. And um, there will be a This Is Hardcore 2022. Thank God I have a weekly show so I can keep updates 
updated. So keep listening. Keep supporting. If you ever want to check out any links, I say it every time. T-I-H-C-Podcast.com. Tish, you're on our website. We've got all the links, cool pictures, and other stuff. So thank you for the support. Thank you for the words on the Rob episode. Absolutely fantastic guy. Great way to start the year. And I hope that we get to have Rob come down for one of the spoken shows. And we may even bring him back on the show for a little bit of a fun episode now and again. But just thank you for the support. And we're going to keep rolling. Thank you so much. Peace.